This is Audible. How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren. The book is subtitled The Classic Guide to Intelligent Reading. Preface How to Read a Book was first published in the early months of 1940. To my surprise, and I confess to my delight, it immediately became a bestseller and remained at the top of the nationwide bestseller list for more than a year. Since 1940, it has continued to be widely circulated in numerous printings, both hardcover and paperback, and it has been translated into other languages, French, Swedish, German, Spanish, and Italian. Why then attempt to recast and rewrite the book for the present generation of readers? The reasons for doing so lie in changes that have taken place, both in our society in the last thirty years, and in the subject itself. Today, many more of the young men and women who complete high school enter and complete four years of college. A much larger proportion of the population has become literate in spite of, or even because of, the popularity of radio and television. There's been a shift of interest, from the reading of fiction to the reading of non-fiction. The educators of the country have acknowledged that teaching the young to read, in the most elementary sense of that word, is our paramount educational problem. A recent secretary of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, designating the 70s as the decade of reading, has dedicated federal funds in support of a wide variety of efforts to improve proficiency in this basic skill. And many of those efforts have scored some success at the level at which children are initiated into the art of reading. In addition, Adults in large numbers have been captivated by the glittering promises made by speed-reading courses, promises to increase their comprehension of what they read, as well as their speed in reading it. However, certain things have not changed in the last thirty years. One constant is that, to achieve all the purposes of reading, the desideratum must be the ability to read different things at different, appropriate speeds, not everything at the greatest possible speed. As Pascal observed three hundred years ago, when we read too fast or too slowly, we understand nothing. Since speed reading has become a national fad, this new edition of How to Read a Book deals with the problem and proposes variable speed reading as the solution, the aim being to read better, always better, but sometimes slower, sometimes faster. Another thing that has not changed, unfortunately, is the failure to carry instruction in reading beyond the elementary level. Most of our educational ingenuity, money, and effort is spent on reading instruction in the first six grades. Beyond that, little formal training is provided to carry students to higher and quite distinct levels of skill. That was true in 1939, when Professor James Marcel of Columbia University's Teachers College wrote an article for the Atlantic Monthly entitled the failure of the schools. What he said then, in two paragraphs that I am now going to quote, is still true. Do pupils in school learn to read their mother tongue effectively? Yes and no. Up to the fifth and sixth grade, reading, on the whole, is effectively taught and well learned. To that level we find a steady and general improvement, but beyond it the curves flatten out to a dead level. This is not because a person arrives at his natural limit of efficiency when he reaches the sixth grade, or it's been shown again and again 
that with special tuition, much older children, and also adults, can make enormous improvement. Nor does it mean that most sixth graders read well enough for all practical purposes. A great many pupils do poorly in high school because of sheer ineptitude in getting meaning from the printed page. They can improve, they need to improve, but they don't. The average high school graduate has done a great deal of reading, and if he goes on to college he will do a great deal more, but he is likely to be a poor and incompetent reader. Note that this holds true of the average student, not the person who is a subject for special remedial treatment. He can follow a simple piece of fiction and enjoy it, but put him up against a closely written exposition, a carefully and economically stated argument, or a passage requiring critical consideration, and he is at a loss. It has been shown, for instance, that the average high school student is amazingly inept at indicating the central thought of a passage, or the levels of emphasis and subordination in an argument or exposition. To all intents and purposes, he remains a sixth-grade reader till well along in college. If there was a need for how to read a book thirty years ago, as the reception of the first edition of the book would certainly seem to indicate, the need is much greater today. But responding to that greater need is not the only, nor, for that matter, the main motive in rewriting the book. New insights into the problems of learning how to read, a much more comprehensive and better-ordered analysis of the complex art of reading, the flexible application of the basic rules to different types of reading, in fact, to every variety of reading matter, the discovery and formulation of new rules of reading, and the conception of a pyramid of books to read, broad at the bottom and tapering at the top, all these things, not treated adequately or not treated at all in the book that I wrote thirty years ago, called for exposition and demanded the thorough rewriting that has now been done and is here being published. The year after How to Read a Book was published, a parody of it appeared under the title How to Read Two Books and Professor I. A. Richards wrote a serious treatise entitled How to Read a Page. I mention both these sequels in order to point out that the problems of reading suggested by both of these titles, the jocular as well as the serious one, are fully treated in this rewriting, especially the problem of how to read a number of related books in relation to one another, and read them in such a way that the complementary and conflicting things they have to say about a common subject are clearly grasped. Among the reasons for rewriting how to read a book, I have stressed the things to be said about the art of reading, and the points to be made about the need for acquiring higher levels of skill in this art, which were not touched on or developed in the original version of the book. Anyone who wishes to discover how much has been added can do so quickly, by comparing the present table of contents with that of the original version. Of the four parts, only part two, expounding the rules of analytical reading, closely parallels the content of the original, and even that has been largely recast. The introduction in part one of the distinction of four levels of reading, elementary, inspectional, analytical, and syntopical, is the basic and controlling change in the book's organization and content. The exposition in Part 3, 
of the different ways to approach different kinds of reading materials, practical and theoretical books, imaginative literature, lyric poetry, epics, novels, plays, history, science, and mathematics, social science, and philosophy, as well as reference books, current journalism, and even advertising, is the most extensive edition that has been made. Finally, the discussion of syntopical reading in Part 4 is wholly new. In the work of updating, recasting, and rewriting this book, I have been joined by Charles Van Doren, who for many years now has been my associate at the Institute for Philosophical Research. We have worked together on other books, notably the twenty-volume Annals of America, published by Encyclopedia Britannica, Incorporated in 1969. What is perhaps more relevant to the present cooperative venture in which we have been engaged as co-authors is that during the last eight years, Charles Van Doren and I have worked closely together in conducting discussion groups on great books and in moderating executive seminars in Chicago, San Francisco, and Aspen. In the course of these experiences, we acquired many of the new insights that have gone into the rewriting of this book. I am grateful to Mr. Van Doren for the contribution he has made to our joint effort. And he and I, together, wish to express our deepest gratitude for all the constructive criticism, guidance, and help that we have received from our friend Arthur L. H. Rubin, who persuaded us to introduce many of the important changes that distinguish this book from its predecessor, and make it, we hope, a better and more useful book. Mortimer J. Adler Boca Grande, March 26th, 1972 Part 1 The Dimensions of Reading Chapter 1 The Activity and Art of Reading This is a book for readers and for those who wish to become readers. Particularly, it is for readers of books. Even more particularly, it is for those whose main purpose in reading books is to gain increased understanding. By readers, we mean people who are still accustomed, as almost every literate and intelligent person used to be, to gain a large share of their information about and their understanding of the world from the written word. Not all of it, of course. Even in the days before radio and television, a certain amount of information and understanding was acquired through spoken words and through observation. But for intelligent and curious people, that was never enough. They knew that they had to read, too, and they did read. There is some feeling nowadays that reading is not as necessary as it once was. Radio, and especially television, have taken over many of the functions once served by print, just as photography has taken over functions once served by painting and other graphic arts. Admittedly, television serves some of these functions extremely well. The visual communication of news events, for example, has enormous impact. The ability of radio to give us information while we are engaged in doing other things, for instance, driving a car, is remarkable and a great saving of time. But it may be seriously questioned whether the advent of modern communications media has much enhanced our understanding of the world in which we live. Perhaps we know more about the world than we used to, and insofar as knowledge is prerequisite to understanding, that is all to the good. But knowledge is not as much a prerequisite to understanding as is commonly supposed. We do not have to know everything about something in order to understand it. 
Too many facts are often as much of an obstacle to understanding as too few. There is a sense in which we moderns are inundated with facts to the detriment of understanding. One of the reasons for this situation is that the very media we have mentioned are so designed as to make thinking seem unnecessary, though this is only an appearance. The packaging of intellectual positions and views is one of the most active enterprises of some of the best minds of our day. The viewer of television, the listener to radio, the reader of magazines, is presented with a whole complex of elements, all the way from ingenious rhetoric to carefully selected data and statistics, to make it easy for him to make up his own mind, with the minimum of difficulty and effort. But the packaging is often done so effectively that the viewer, listener, or reader does not make up his own mind at all. Instead, he inserts a packaged opinion into his mind, somewhat like inserting a cassette into a cassette player. He then pushes a button and plays back the opinion whenever it seems appropriate to do so. He has performed acceptably, without having had to think. Active Reading As we said at the beginning, we will be principally concerned in these pages with the development of skill in reading books, but the rules of reading that, if followed and practiced, develop such skill, can be applied also to printed material in general, to any type of reading matter, to newspapers, magazines, pamphlets, articles, tracts, even advertisements. Since reading of any sort is an activity, all reading must to some degree be active. Completely passive reading is impossible. We cannot read with our eyes immobilized and our minds asleep. Hence, when we contrast active with passive reading, our purpose is first to call attention to the fact that reading can be more or less active, and second, to point out that the more active the reading, the better. One reader is better than another in proportion as he is capable of a greater range of activity in reading and exerts more effort. He is better if he demands more of himself and of the text before him. Though strictly speaking there can be no absolutely passive reading, many people think that as compared with writing and speaking, which are obviously active undertakings, reading and listening are entirely passive. The writer or speaker must put out some effort, but no work need be done by the reader or listener. Reading and listening are thought of as receiving communication from someone who is actively engaged in giving or sending it. The mistake here is to suppose that receiving communication is like receiving a blow or a legacy or a judgment from the court. On the contrary, the reader or listener is much more like the catcher in a game of baseball. Catching the ball is just as much an activity as pitching or hitting it. The pitcher or batter is the sender in the sense that his activity initiates the motion of the ball. The catcher or fielder is the receiver in the sense that his activity terminates it. Both are active, though the activities are different. If anything is passive, it is the ball. It is the inert thing that is put in motion or stopped whereas the players are active, moving to pitch, hit, or catch. The analogy with writing and reading is almost perfect. The thing that is written and read, like the ball, is the passive object, common to the two activities that begin and terminate the process.
we can take this analogy a step further. The art of catching is the skill of catching every kind of pitch, fastballs and curves, change-ups and knucklers. Similarly, the art of reading is the skill of catching every sort of communication as well as possible. It is noteworthy that the pitcher and catcher are successful only to the extent that they cooperate. The relation of writer and reader is similar. The writer isn't trying not to be caught, although it sometimes seems so. Successful communication occurs in any case where what the writer wanted to have received finds its way into the reader's possession. The writer's skill and the reader's skill converge upon a common end. Admittedly, writers vary just as pitchers do. Some writers have excellent control. They know exactly what they want to convey, and they convey it precisely and accurately. Other things being equal, they are easier to catch than a wild writer without control. There is one respect in which the analogy breaks down. The ball is a simple unit. It is either completely caught or not. A piece of writing, however, is a complex object. It can be received more or less completely, all the way from very little of what the writer intended to the whole of it. The amount the reader catches will usually depend on the amount of activity he puts into the process, as well as upon the skill with which he executes the different mental acts involved. What does active reading entail? We will return to this question many times in this book. For the moment, it suffices to say that given the same thing to read, one person reads it better than another, first, by reading it more actively, and second, by performing each of the acts involved more skillfully. These two things are related. Reading is a complex activity just as writing is. It consists of a large number of separate acts, all of which must be performed in a good reading. The person who can perform more of them is better able to read. The Goals of Reading Reading for Information and Reading for Understanding You have a mind. Now let us suppose that you also have a book that you want to read. The book consists of language written by someone for the sake of communicating something to you. Your success in reading it is determined by the extent to which you receive everything the writer intended to communicate. That, of course, is too simple. The reason is that there are two possible relations between your mind and the book, not just one. These two relations are exemplified by two different experiences that you can have in reading your book. There is the book, and here is your mind. As you go through the pages, either you understand perfectly everything the author has to say, or you do not. If you do, you may have gained information, but you could not have increased your understanding. If the book is completely intelligible to you from start to finish, then the author and you are as two minds in the same mold. The symbols on the page merely express the common understanding you had before you met. Let us take our second alternative. You do not understand the book perfectly. Let us even assume, what unhappily is not always true, that you understand enough to know that you do not understand it all. You know the book has more to say than you understand, and hence that it contains something that can increase your understanding. What do you do then?
You can take the book to someone else who you think can read better than you, and have him explain the parts that trouble you. He may be a living person or another book, a commentary or textbook. Or you may decide that what is over your head is not worth bothering about, that you understand enough. In either case, you are not doing the job of reading that the book requires. That is done in only one way. Without external help of any sort, you go to work on the book. With nothing but the power of your own mind, you operate on the symbols before you in such a way that you gradually lift yourself from a state of understanding less to one of understanding more. Such elevation, accomplished by the mind working on a book, is highly skilled reading, the kind of reading that a book which challenges your understanding deserves. Thus we can roughly define what we mean by the art of reading as follows. The process whereby a mind, with nothing to operate on but the symbols of the readable matter, and with no help from outside, elevates itself by the power of its own operations. Note. There is one kind of situation in which it is appropriate to ask for outside help in reading a difficult book. This exception is discussed in Chapter 18. The mind passes from understanding less to understanding more. The skilled operations that cause this to happen are the various acts that constitute the art of reading. To pass from understanding less to understanding more by your own intellectual effort in reading is something like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It certainly feels that way. It is a major exertion. Obviously, it is a more active kind of reading than you have done before, entailing not only more varied activity but also much more skill in the performance of the various acts required. Obviously, too, the things that are usually regarded as more difficult to read, and hence as only for the better reader, are those that are more likely to deserve and demand this kind of reading. The distinction between reading for information and reading for understanding is deeper than this. Let us try to say more about it. We will have to consider both goals of reading because the line between what is readable in one way and what must be read in the other is often hazy. To the extent that we can keep these two goals of reading distinct, we can employ the word reading in two distinct senses. The first sense is the one in which we speak of ourselves as reading newspapers, magazines, or anything else that, according to our skill and talents, is at once thoroughly intelligible to us. Such things may increase our store of information, but they cannot improve our understanding for our understanding was equal to them before we started. Otherwise we would have felt the shock of puzzlement and perplexity that comes from getting in over our depth, that is, if we were both alert and honest. The second sense is the one in which a person tries to read something that, at first, he does not completely understand. Here the thing to be read is initially better or higher than the reader. The writer is communicating something that can increase the reader's understanding. Such communication between unequals must be possible, or else one person could never learn from another, either through speech or writing. Here, by learning, is meant understanding more, not remembering more information that has the same degree of intelligibility as other information you already possess.
There is clearly no difficulty of an intellectual sort about gaining new information in the course of reading if the new facts are of the same sort as those you already know. A person who knows some of the facts of American history and understands them in a certain light can readily acquire by reading in the first sense more such facts and understand them in the same light. But suppose he's reading a history that seeks not merely to give him some more facts, but also to throw a new and perhaps more revealing light on all the facts he knows. Suppose there is greater understanding available here than he possessed before he started to read. If he can manage to acquire that greater understanding, he is reading in the second sense. He has indeed elevated himself by his activity, though indirectly, of course, the elevation was made possible by the writer who had something to teach him. What are the conditions under which this kind of reading, reading for understanding, takes place? There are two. First, there is initial inequality in understanding. The writer must be superior to the reader in understanding, and his book must convey in readable form the insights he possesses and his potential readers lack. Second, the reader must be able to overcome this inequality in some degree, seldom perhaps fully, but always approaching equality with the writer. To the extent that equality is approached, clarity of communication is achieved. In short, we can learn only from our betters. We must know who they are and how to learn from them. The person who has this sort of knowledge possesses the art of reading in the sense with which we are especially concerned in this book. Everyone who can read at all probably has some ability to read in this way. But all of us, without exception, can learn to read better and gradually gain more by our efforts through applying them to more rewarding materials. We do not want to give the impression that facts leading to increased information and insights leading to increased understanding are always easy to distinguish. And we would admit that sometimes a mere recital of facts can itself lead to greater understanding. The point we want to emphasize here is that this book is about the art of reading for the sake of increased understanding. Fortunately, if you learn to do that, reading for information will usually take care of itself. Of course, there is still another goal of reading, besides gaining information and understanding, and that is entertainment. However, this book will not be much concerned with reading for entertainment. It is the least demanding kind of reading, and it requires the least amount of effort. Furthermore, there are no rules for it. Everyone who knows how to read at all can read for entertainment if he wants to. In fact, any book that can be read for understanding or information can probably be read for entertainment as well, just as a book that is capable of increasing our understanding can also be read purely for the information it contains. This proposition cannot be reversed. It is not true that every book that can be read for entertainment can also be read for understanding. Nor do we wish to urge you never to read a good book for entertainment. The point is, if you wish to read a good book for understanding, we believe we can help you. Our subject, then, is the art of reading good books when understanding is the aim you have in view. Reading as Learning
the difference between learning by instruction and learning by discovery. Getting more information is learning, and so is coming to understand what you did not understand before. But there is an important difference between these two kinds of learning. To be informed is to know simply that something is the case. To be enlightened is to know, in addition, what it is all about, why it is the case, what its connections are with other facts, in what respects it is the same, in what respects it is different, and so forth. This distinction is familiar in terms of the differences between being able to remember something and being able to explain it. If you remember what an author says, you have learned something from reading him. If what he says is true, you have even learned something about the world. But whether it is a fact about the book or a fact about the world that you have learned, you have gained nothing but information if you have exercised only your memory. You have not been enlightened. Enlightenment is achieved only when, in addition to knowing what an author says, you know what he means and why he says it. It is true, of course, that you should be able to remember what the author said as well as know what he meant. Being informed is prerequisite to being enlightened. The point, however, is not to stop at being informed. Montaigne speaks of an abecedarian ignorance that precedes knowledge and a doctoral ignorance that comes after it. The first is the ignorance of those who, not knowing their ABCs, cannot read at all. The second is the ignorance of those who have misread many books. They are, as Alexander Pope rightly calls them, bookful blockheads, ignorantly read. There have always been literate ignoramuses who have read too widely and not well. The Greeks had a name for such a mixture of learning and folly, which might be applied to the bookish but poorly read of all ages. They are all sophomores. To avoid this error, the error of assuming that to be widely read and to be well read are the same thing, we must consider a certain distinction in types of learning. This distinction has a significant bearing on the whole business of reading and its relation to education generally. In the history of education, Men have often distinguished between learning by instruction and learning by discovery. Instruction occurs when one person teaches another through speech or writing. We can, however, gain knowledge without being taught. If this were not the case, and every teacher had to be taught what he in turn teaches others, there would be no beginning in the acquisition of knowledge. Hence, there must be discovery. The process of learning something by research by investigation, or by reflection, without being taught. Discovery stands to instruction, as learning without a teacher stands to learning through the help of one. In both cases, the activity of learning goes on in the one who learns. It would be a mistake to suppose that discovery is active learning and instruction passive. There is no inactive learning, just as there is no inactive reading. This is so true, in fact, that a better way to make the distinction clear is to call instruction aided discovery. Without going into learning theory as psychologists conceive it, it is obvious that teaching is a very special art, sharing with only two other arts, agriculture and medicine, an exceptionally important characteristic. A doctor may do many things for his patient, but in the final analysis, it is the patient himself 
who must get well, grow in health. The farmer does many things for his plants or animals, but in the final analysis it is they that must grow in size and excellence. Similarly, although the teacher may help his student in many ways, it is the student himself who must do the learning. Knowledge must grow in his mind if learning is to take place. The difference between learning by instruction and learning by discovery, or as we would prefer to say, between aided and unaided discovery, is primarily a difference in the materials on which the learner works. When he is being instructed, discovering with the help of a teacher, the learner acts on something communicated to him. He performs operations on discourse, written or oral. He learns by acts of reading or listening. Note here the close relation between reading and listening. If we ignore the minor differences between these two ways of receiving communication, we can say that reading and listening are the same art, the art of being taught. When, however, the learner proceeds without the help of any sort of teacher, the operations of learning are performed on nature or the world rather than on discourse. The rules of such learning constitute the art of unaided discovery. If we use the word reading loosely, we can say that discovery, strictly unaided discovery, is the art of reading nature or the world, as instruction, being taught or aided discovery, is the art of reading books, or, to include listening, of learning from discourse. What about thinking? If by thinking we mean the use of our minds to gain knowledge or understanding, and if learning by discovery and learning by instruction exhaust the ways of gaining knowledge, then thinking must take place during both of these two activities. We must think in the course of reading and listening, just as we must think in the course of research. Naturally, the kinds of thinking are different, as different as the two ways of learning are. The reason why many people regard thinking as more closely associated with research and unaided discovery than with being taught is that they suppose reading and listening to be relatively effortless. It is probably true that one does less thinking when one reads for information or entertainment than when one is undertaking to discover something. These are the less active sorts of reading. But it is not true of the more active reading, the effort to understand. No one who's done this sort of reading would say it can be done thoughtlessly. Thinking is only one part of the activity of learning. One must also use one's senses and imagination. One must observe and remember and construct imaginatively what cannot be observed. There is again a tendency to stress the role of these activities in the process of unaided discovery and to forget or minimize their place in the process of being taught through reading or listening. For example, many people assume that though a poet must use his imagination in writing a poem, they do not have to use their imagination in reading it. The art of reading, in short, includes all of the same skills that are involved in the art of unaided discovery, keenness of observation, readily available memory, range of imagination, and, of course, an intellect trained in analysis and reflection.
The reason for this is that reading in this sense is discovery too, although with help instead of without it. Present and Absent Teachers We have been proceeding as if reading and listening could both be treated as learning from teachers. To some extent that is true. Both are ways of being instructed, and for both one must be skilled in the art of being taught. Listening to a course of lectures, for example, is in many respects like reading a book, and listening to a poem is like reading it. Many of the rules to be formulated in this book apply to such experiences. Yet there is good reason to place primary emphasis on reading, and let listening become a secondary concern. The reason is that listening is learning from a teacher who is present, a living teacher, while reading is learning from one who is absent. If you ask a living teacher a question, he will probably answer you. If you are puzzled by what he says, you can save yourself the trouble of thinking by asking him what he means. If, however, you ask a book a question, you must answer it yourself. In this respect, a book is like nature or the world. When you question it, it answers you only to the extent that you do the work of thinking and analysis yourself. This does not mean, of course, that if the living teacher answers your question, you have no further work. That is so only if the question is simply one of fact. But if you are seeking an explanation, you have to understand it, or nothing has been explained to you. Nevertheless, with the living teacher available to you, you are given a lift in the direction of understanding him, as you are not, when the teacher's words in a book are all you have to go by. Students in school often read difficult books with the help and guidance of teachers. But for those of us who are not in school, and indeed also for those of us who are, when we try to read books that are not required or assigned, our continuing education depends mainly on books alone, read without a teacher's help. Therefore, if we are disposed to go on learning and discovering, we must know how to make books teach us well. That, indeed, is the primary goal of this book. Chapter 2 The Levels of Reading In the preceding chapter we made some distinctions that will be important in what follows. The goal a reader seeks, be it entertainment, information, or understanding, determines the way he reads. The effectiveness with which he reads is determined by the amount of effort and skill he puts into his reading. In general, the rule is, the more effort, the better, at least in the case of books that are initially beyond our powers as readers and are therefore capable of raising us from a condition of understanding less to one of understanding more. Finally, the distinction between instruction and discovery, or between aided and unaided discovery, is important because most of us, most of the time, have to read without anyone to help us. Reading, like unaided discovery, is learning from an absent teacher. We can only do that successfully if we know how. But important as these distinctions are, they are relatively insignificant compared to the points we're going to make in this chapter. These all have to do with the levels of reading. The differences between the levels must be understood before any effective improvement in reading skills can occur. There are four levels of reading. They are here called levels rather than kinds, because kinds, strictly speaking, 
are distinct from one another, whereas it is characteristic of levels that higher ones include lower ones. So it is with the levels of reading, which are cumulative. The first level is not lost in the second, the second in the third, the third in the fourth. In fact, the fourth and highest level of reading includes all the others. It simply goes beyond them. The first level of reading we will call elementary reading. Other names might be rudimentary reading, basic reading, or initial reading. Any one of these terms serves to suggest that as one masters this level, one passes from non-literacy to at least beginning literacy. In mastering this level, one learns the rudiments of the art of reading, receives basic training in reading, and acquires initial reading skills. We prefer the name elementary reading, however, because this level of reading is ordinarily learned in elementary school. The child's first encounter with reading is at this level. His problem then, and ours when we began to read, is to recognize the individual words on the page. The child sees a collection of black marks on a white ground, or perhaps white marks on a black ground, if he's reading from a blackboard. What the marks say is, The cat sat on the hat. The first grader is not really concerned at this point with whether cats do sit on hats, or with what this implies about cats, hats, and the world. He is merely concerned with language as it is employed by the writer. At this level of reading, the question asked of the reader is, What does the sentence say? That could be conceived as a complex and difficult question, of course. We mean it here, however, in its simplest sense. The attainment of the skills of elementary reading occurred some time ago for almost all who read this book. Nevertheless, we continue to experience the problems of this level of reading, no matter how capable we may be as readers. This happens, for example, whenever we come upon something we want to read that is written in a foreign language that we do not know very well. Then our first effort must be to identify the actual words. Only after recognizing them individually can we begin to try to understand them, to struggle with perceiving what they mean. Even when they are reading material written in their own language, many readers continue to have various kinds of difficulties at this level of reading. Most of these difficulties are mechanical, and some of them can be traced back to early instruction in reading. Overcoming these difficulties usually allows us to read faster. Hence, most speed-reading courses concentrate on this level. We will have more to say about elementary reading in the next chapter, and in Chapter 4 we will discuss speed-reading. The second level of reading we will call inspectional reading. It is characterized by its special emphasis on time. When reading at this level, the student is allowed a set time to complete an assigned amount of reading. He might be allowed fifteen minutes to read this book, for instance, or even a book twice as long. Hence, another way to describe this level of reading is to say that its aim is to get the most out of a book within a given time, usually a relatively short time, and always, by definition, too short a time to get out of the book everything that can be gotten. Still another name for this level might be skimming or pre-reading. However, we do not mean the kind of skimming that is characterized by casual or random browsing through a book. Inspectional reading is the art of skimming systematically. 
When reading at this level, your aim is to examine the surface of the book, to learn everything that the surface alone can teach you. That is often a good deal. Whereas the question that is asked at the first level is, what does the sentence say? The question typically asked at this level is, what is the book about? That is a surface question. Others of a similar nature are, what is the structure of the book? Or, what are its parts? Upon completing an inspectional reading of a book, no matter how short the time you had to do it in, you should also be able to answer the question, what kind of book is it? A novel? A history? A scientific treatise? Chapter 4 is devoted to an account of this level of reading, so we will not discuss it further here. We do want to stress, however, that most people, even many quite good readers, are unaware of the value of inspectional reading. They start a book on page one and plow steadily through it without even reading the table of contents. They are thus faced with the task of achieving a superficial knowledge of the book at the same time that they are trying to understand it. That compounds the difficulty. The third level of reading we will call analytical reading. It is both a more complex and a more systematic activity than either of the two levels of reading discussed so far. Depending on the difficulty of the text to be read, it makes more or less heavy demands on the reader. Analytical reading is thorough reading, complete reading, or good reading, the best reading you can do. If inspectional reading is the best and most complete reading that is possible given a limited time, then analytical reading is the best and most complete reading that is possible given unlimited time. The analytical reader must ask many and organized questions of what he is reading. We do not want to state these questions here, since this book is mainly about reading at this level. Part 2 gives its rules and tells you how to do it. We do want to emphasize here that analytical reading is always intensely active. On this level of reading, the reader grasps a book, the metaphor is apt, and works at it until the book becomes his own. Francis Bacon once remarked that some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. Reading a book analytically is chewing and digesting it. We also want to stress that analytical reading is hardly ever necessary if your goal in reading is simply information or entertainment. Analytical reading is preeminently for the sake of understanding. Conversely, bringing your mind with the aid of a book from a condition of understanding less to one of understanding more is almost impossible unless you have at least some skill in analytical reading. The fourth and highest level of reading we will call syntopical reading. It is the most complex and systematic type of reading of all. It makes very heavy demands on the reader, even if the materials he is reading are themselves relatively easy and unsophisticated. Another name for this level might be comparative reading. When reading syntopically, the reader reads many books, not just one, and places them in relation to one another and to a subject about which they all revolve. But mere comparison of texts is not enough. Syntopical reading involves more. 
With the help of the books read, the syntopical reader is able to construct an analysis of the subject that may not be in any of the books. It is obvious, therefore, that syntopical reading is the most active and effortful kind of reading. We will discuss syntopical reading in Part 4. Let it suffice for the moment to say that syntopical reading is not an easy art, and that the rules for it are not widely known. Nevertheless, syntopical reading is probably the most rewarding of all reading activities. The benefits are so great that it is well worth the trouble of learning how to do it. Chapter 3 The First Level of Reading Elementary Reading Ours is a time of great interest in and concern about reading. Public officials have declared that the 1970s will be the decade of reading. Best-selling books tell us why Johnny can or can't read. Research and experimentation in all fields of initial reading instruction proceed at an ever-increasing pace. Three historical trends or movements have converged upon our time to produce this ferment. The first is the continuing effort of the United States to educate all of its citizens, which means, of course, at a minimum, to make them all literate. This effort, which Americans have supported almost from the beginning of the national existence, and which is one of the cornerstones of our democratic way of life, has had remarkable results. Near-universal literacy was obtained in the United States earlier than anywhere else, and this, in turn, has helped us to become the highly developed industrial society that we are at the present day. But there have been enormous problems, too. They can be summed up in the observation that teaching a small percentage of highly motivated children, most of them the children of literate parents, to read, as was the case a century ago, is a far cry from teaching every child to read, no matter how little motivated he may be or how deprived his background. The second historical trend is in the teaching of reading itself. As late as 1870, reading instruction was little changed from what it had been in Greek and Roman schools. In America, at least, the so-called ABC method was dominant throughout most of the 19th century. Children were taught to sound out the letters of the alphabet individually, hence the name of this method, and to combine them in syllables, first two letters at a time, and then three and four, whether the syllables so constructed were meaningful or not. Thus, syllables such as ab, ak, ad, ib, ik were practiced for the sake of mastery of the language. When a child could name all of a determined number of combinations, he was said to know his ABCs. This synthetic method of teaching reading came under heavy criticism around the middle of the last century, and two alternatives to it were proposed. One was a variant on the synthetic ABC method known as the phonic method. Here, the word was recognized by its sounds rather than by its letter names. Complicated and ingenious systems of printing were evolved for the purpose of representing the different sounds made by a single letter, especially the vowels. If you are fifty or over, it is probable that you learned to read using some variant of the phonic method. A wholly different approach, analytical rather than synthetic, originated in Germany and was advocated by Horace Mann and other educators after about 1840. 
This involved teaching the visual recognition of whole words before giving any attention to letter names or letter sounds. This so-called sight method was later extended so that whole sentences representing units of thought were introduced first, with the pupils only later learning to recognize the constituent words, and then, finally, the constituent letters. This method was especially popular during the 1920s and 30s, which period was also characterized by the shift in emphasis from oral reading to silent reading. It was found that ability to read orally did not necessarily mean ability to read silently, and that instruction in oral reading was not always adequate if silent reading was the goal. Thus, an almost exclusive emphasis on rapid, comprehensive silent reading was a feature of the years from about 1920 to 1925. More recently, however, the pendulum has swung back again toward phonics, which indeed had never entirely left the curriculum. All of these different methods of teaching elementary reading were successful for some pupils, unsuccessful for others. In the last two or three decades, it has perhaps been the failures that have attracted the most attention. And here the third historical trend comes into play. It is traditional in America to criticize the schools. For more than a century, parents, self-styled experts, and educators themselves have attacked and indicted the educational system. No aspect of schooling has been more severely criticized than reading instruction. The current books have a long ancestry, and every innovation carries in its train a posse of suspicious and, one feels, unpersuadable observers. The critics may or may not be right, but in any event the problems have taken on a new urgency, as the continuing effort to educate all citizens has entered a new phase, resulting in ever-growing high school and college populations. A young man or woman who cannot read very well is hindered in his pursuit of the American dream, but that remains largely a personal matter if he is not in school. If he remains in school or goes to college, however, it is a matter of concern for his teachers as well, and for his fellow students. Hence, researchers are very active at the present time, and their work has resulted in numerous new approaches to reading instruction. Among the more important new programs are the so-called eclectic approach, the individualized reading approach, the language experience approach, the various approaches based on linguistic principles, and others based more or less closely on some kind of programmed instruction. In addition, new mediums, such as the Initial Teaching Alphabet, ITA, have been employed, and sometimes these involve new methods as well. Still, other devices and programs are the Total Immersion Method, the Foreign Language School Method, and the method known variously as the See-Say, Look-Say, Look-And-Say, or word method. Doubtless experiments are now being undertaken in methods and approaches that differ from all of these. It is perhaps too early to tell whether any of these is the long-sought panacea for all reading ills. Stages of Learning to Read One useful finding of recent research is the analysis of stages in learning to read. It is now widely accepted that there are at least four more or less clearly distinguishable stages 
in the child's progress toward what is called mature reading ability. The first stage is known by the term reading readiness. This begins, it has been pointed out, at birth, and continues normally until the age of about six or seven. Reading readiness includes several different kinds of preparation for learning to read. Physical readiness involves good vision and hearing. Intellectual readiness involves a minimum level of visual perception such that the child can take in and remember an entire word and the letters that combine to form it. Language readiness involves the ability to speak clearly and to use several sentences in correct order. Personal readiness involves the ability to work with other children, to sustain attention, to follow directions, and the like. General reading readiness is assessed by tests, and is also estimated by teachers who are often skillful at discerning just when a pupil is ready to learn to read. The important thing to remember is that jumping the gun is usually self-defeating. The child who is not yet ready to read is frustrated if attempts are made to teach him, and he may carry over his dislike for the experience into his later school career and even into adult life. Delaying the beginning of reading instruction beyond the reading readiness stage is not nearly so serious despite the feelings of parents who may fear that their child is backward or is not keeping up with his peers. In the second stage, children learn to read very simple materials. They usually begin, at least in the United States, by learning a few sight words, and typically manage to master perhaps 300 to 400 words by the end of the first year. Basic skills are introduced at this time, such as the use of context or meaning clues and the beginning sounds of words. By the end of this period, pupils are expected to be reading simple books independently and with enthusiasm. It is incidentally worth observing that something quite mysterious, almost magical, occurs during this stage. At one moment in the course of his development, the child, when faced with a series of symbols on a page, finds them quite meaningless. Not much later, perhaps only two or three weeks later, he has discovered meaning in them. He knows that they say, the cat sat on the hat. How this happens, no one really knows, despite the efforts of philosophers and psychologists over two and a half millennia to study the phenomenon. Where does meaning come from? How is it that a French child would find the same meaning in the symbols le chat s'asseyait sur la chapeau? Indeed, this discovery of meaning in symbols may be the most astounding intellectual feat that any human being ever performs. And most humans perform it before they are seven years old. The third stage is characterized by rapid progress in vocabulary building, and by increasing skill in unlocking the meaning of unfamiliar words through context clues. In addition, children at this stage learn to read for different purposes and in different areas of content, such as science, social studies, language arts, and the like. They learn that reading, 
besides being something one does at school, is also something one can do on one's own, for fun, to satisfy curiosity, or even to expand one's horizons. Finally, the fourth stage is characterized by the refinement and enhancement of the skills previously acquired. Above all, the student begins to be able to assimilate his reading experiences, that is, to carry over concepts from one piece of writing to another, and to compare the views of different writers on the same subject. This, the mature stage of reading, should be reached by young persons in their early teens. Ideally, they should continue to build on it for the rest of their lives. That they often do not even reach it is apparent to many parents and to most educators. The reasons for the failure are many, ranging all the way from various kinds of deprivations in the home environment, economic, social, and or intellectual, including parental illiteracy, to personal problems of all kinds, including total revolt against the system. But one cause of the failure is not often noted. The very emphasis on reading readiness and on the methods employed to teach children the rudiments of reading has meant that the other, the higher levels of reading, have tended to be slighted. This is quite understandable, considering the urgency and extent of the problems found on this first level. Nevertheless, effective remedies for the overall reading deficiencies of Americans cannot be found unless efforts are made on all levels of reading. Stages and Levels We have described four levels of reading and we have also outlined four stages of learning to read in an elementary fashion. What is the relation between these stages and levels? It is of paramount importance to recognize that the four stages outlined here are all stages of the first level of reading, as outlined in the previous chapter. They are stages, that is, of elementary reading, which thus can be usefully divided somewhat in the manner of the elementary school curriculum. The first stage of elementary reading, reading readiness, corresponds to preschool and kindergarten experiences. The second stage, word mastery, corresponds to the first grade experience of the typical child, although many quite normal children are not typical in this sense, with the result that the child attains what we can call second stage reading skills or first grade ability in reading or first grade literacy. The third stage of elementary reading vocabulary growth and the utilization of context, is typically, but not universally, even for normal children, acquired at about the end of the fourth grade of elementary school and results in what is variously called fourth grade or functional literacy, the ability, according to one common definition, to read traffic signs or picture captions fairly easily, to fill out the simpler government forms and the like. The fourth and final stage of elementary reading is attained at about the time the pupil leaves or graduates from elementary school or junior high school. It is sometimes called eighth grade, ninth grade, or tenth grade literacy. The child is a mature reader in the sense that he is now capable of reading almost anything, but still in a relatively unsophisticated manner. In the simplest terms, he is mature enough to do high school work. However, he is not yet a mature reader, in the sense in which we want to employ the term in this book. He has mastered the first level 
of reading. That is all. He can read on his own and is prepared to learn more about reading. But he does not yet know how to read beyond the elementary level. We mention all this because it is highly germane to the message of this book. We assume, we must assume, that you, our reader, have attained ninth grade literacy, that you have mastered the elementary level of reading, which means that you have passed successfully through the four stages described. If you think about it, you realize that we could not assume less. No one can learn from a how-to-do-it book until he can read it, and it is particularly true of a book purporting to teach one to read that its readers must be able to read in some sense of the term. The difference between aided and unaided discovery comes into play here. Typically, the four stages of elementary reading are attained with the help of living teachers. Children differ in their abilities, of course. Some need more help than others. But a teacher is usually present to answer questions and smooth over difficulties that arise during the elementary school years. Only when he has mastered all of the four stages of elementary reading is the child prepared to move on to the higher levels of reading. Only then can he read independently and learn on his own. Only then can he begin to become a really good reader. Higher Levels of Reading and Higher Education Traditionally, the high schools of America have provided little reading instruction for their students, and the colleges have provided none. That situation has changed in recent years. Two generations ago, when high school enrollments increased greatly within a relatively short period, educators began to realize that it could no longer be assumed that entering students could read effectively. Remedial reading instruction was therefore provided, sometimes for as many as 75% or more students. Within the last decade, the same situation has occurred at the college level. Thus, of approximately 40,000 freshmen entering the City University of New York in the fall of 1971, upwards of half, or more than 20,000 young people, had to be given some kind of remedial training in reading. That does not mean, however, that reading instruction beyond the elementary level is offered in many U.S. colleges to this day. In fact, it is offered in almost none of them. Remedial reading instruction is not instruction in the higher levels of reading. It serves only to bring students up to a level of maturity in reading that they should have attained by the time they graduated from elementary school. To this day, most institutions of higher learning either do not know how to instruct students in reading beyond the elementary level or lack the facilities and personnel to do so. We say this despite the fact that a number of four-year and community colleges have recently instituted courses in speed reading, or in effective reading, or competence in reading. On the whole, though there are exceptions, these courses are remedial. They are designed to overcome various kinds of failures of the lower schools. They are not designed to take the student beyond the first level, or to introduce him to the kinds and levels of reading that are the main subject of this book. This, of course, should not be the case. A good liberal arts high school, if it does nothing else, ought to produce graduates who are competent analytical readers. A good college, if it does nothing else, ought to produce competent syntopical readers. 
a college degree ought to represent general competence in reading, such that a graduate could read any kind of material for general readers and be able to undertake independent research on almost any subject. For that is what syntopical reading, among other things, enables you to do. Often, however, three or four years of graduate study are required before students attain this level of reading ability, and they do not always attain it even then. One should not have to spend four years in graduate school in order to learn how to read. Four years of graduate school, in addition to twelve years of preparatory education and four years of college, that adds up to twenty full years of schooling. It should not take that long to learn to read. Something is very wrong if it does. What is wrong can be corrected. Courses should be instituted in many high schools and colleges that are based on the program described in this book. There is nothing arcane or even really new about what we have to propose. It is largely common sense. Reading and the Democratic Ideal of Education We do not want to seem to be mere carping critics. We know that the thunder of thousands of freshman feet upon the stairs makes it hard to hear, no matter how reasonable the message. And as long as a large proportion, even a majority of these new students cannot read effectively at the elementary level, we are aware that the first task to be faced must be to teach them to read in the lowest the largest common denominator sense of the term. Nor for the moment would be wanted any other way. We are on record as holding that unlimited educational opportunity, or, speaking practically, educational opportunity that is limited only by individual desire, ability, and need, is the most valuable service that society can provide for its members. That we do not yet know how to provide that kind of opportunity is no reason to give up the attempt. But we must also realize, students, teachers, and laymen alike, that even when we have accomplished the task that lies before us, we will not have accomplished the whole task. We must be more than a nation of functional literates. We must become a nation of truly competent readers, recognizing all that the word competent implies. Nothing less will satisfy the needs of the world that is coming. Chapter 4 The Second Level of Reading Inspectional Reading Inspectional reading is a true level of reading. It is quite distinct from the level that precedes it, elementary reading, and from the one that follows it in natural sequence, analytical reading. But as we noted in Chapter 2, the levels of reading are cumulative. Thus, elementary reading is contained in inspectional reading, as indeed inspectional reading is contained in analytical reading, and analytical reading in syntopical reading. Practically, this means that you cannot read on the inspectional level unless you can read effectively on the elementary level. You must be able to read an author's text more or less steadily, without having to stop to look up the meaning of many words, and without stumbling over the grammar and syntax. You must be able to make sense of a majority of the sentences in paragraphs, although not necessarily the best sense of all of them. What, then, is involved in inspectional reading? How do you go about doing it? The first thing to realize is that there are two types of inspectional reading. 
They are aspects of a single skill, but the beginning reader is well advised to consider them as two different steps or activities. The experienced reader learns to perform both steps simultaneously, but for the moment we will treat them as if they were quite distinct. Inspectional Reading 1. Systematic Skimming or Pre-Reading Let us return to the basic situation to which we have referred before. There is a book or other reading matter, and here is your mind. What is the first thing that you do? Let us assume two further elements in the situation, elements that are quite common. First, you do not know whether you want to read the book. You do not know whether it deserves an analytical reading. But you suspect that it does, or at least that it contains both information and insights that would be valuable to you if you could dig them out. Second, let us assume, and this is very often the case, that you have only a limited time in which to find all this out. In this case, what you must do is skim the book, or, as some prefer to say, pre-read it. Skimming or pre-reading is the first sub-level of inspectional reading. Your main aim is to discover whether the book requires a more careful reading. Secondly, skimming can tell you lots of other things about the book, even if you decide not to read it again with more care. Giving a book this kind of quick once-over is a threshing process that helps you to separate the chaff from the real kernels of nourishment. You may discover that what you get from skimming is all the book is worth to you for the time being. It may never be worth more. But you will know at least what the author's main contention is, as well as what kind of book he has written, so the time you have spent looking through the book will not have been wasted. The habit of skimming should not take much time to acquire. Here are some suggestions about how to do it. 1. Look at the title page, and if the book has one, at its preface. Read each quickly. Note especially the subtitles, or other indications of the scope or aim of the book, or of the author's special angle on his subject. Before completing this step, you should have a good idea of the subject, and if you wish, you may pause for a moment to place the book in the appropriate category in your mind. What pigeonhole that already contains other books does this one belong in? 2. Study the table of contents to obtain a general sense of the book's structure. Use it as you would use a road map before taking a trip. It is astonishing how many people never even glance at a book's table of contents unless they wish to look something up in it. In fact, many authors spend a considerable amount of time in creating the table of contents and it is sad to think their efforts are often wasted. It used to be a common practice, especially in expository works, but sometimes even in novels and poems, to write very full tables of contents, with the chapters or parts broken down into many subtitles indicative of the topics covered. Milton, for example, wrote more or less lengthy headings, or arguments, as he called them, for each book of Paradise Lost. Gibbon, published his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, with an extensive analytical table of contents for each chapter. Such summaries are no longer common, although occasionally you do still come across an analytical table of contents. One reason for the decline of the practice may be that people are not so likely to read tables of contents as they once were. Also, publishers have come to feel that a less revealing table of contents is more seductive than a completely frank and open one. Readers, they feel, will be attracted to a book with more or less mysterious chapter titles. 
they will want to read the book to find out what the chapters are about. Even so, a table of contents can be valuable, and you should read it carefully before going on to the rest of the book. 3. Check the index if the book has one. Most expository works do. Make a quick estimate of the range of topics covered and of the kinds of books and authors referred to. When you see terms listed that seem crucial, look up at least some of the passages cited. We will have much more to say about crucial terms in Part 2. Here you must make your judgment of their importance on the basis of your general sense of the book, as obtained from Steps 1 and 2. The passages you read may contain the crux, the point on which the book hinges, or the new departure, which is the key to the author's approach and attitude. 4. If the book is a new one with a dust jacket, read the publisher's blurb. Some people have the impression that the blurb is never anything but sheer puffery, but this is quite often not true, especially in the case of expository works. The blurbs of many of these books are written by the authors themselves, admittedly with the help of the publisher's public relations department. It is not uncommon for authors to try to summarize as accurately as they can the main points in their book. These efforts should not go unnoticed. Of course, if the blurb is nothing but a puff for the book, you will ordinarily be able to discover this at a glance. But that in itself can tell you something about the work. Perhaps the book does not say anything of importance, and that is why the blurb does not say anything either. Upon completing these first four steps, you may already have enough information about the book to know that you want to read it more carefully, or that you do not want or need to read it at all. In either case, you may put it aside for the moment. If you do not do so, you are now ready to skim the book, properly speaking. 5. From your general and still rather vague knowledge of the book's contents, look now at the chapters that seem to be pivotal to its argument. If these chapters have summary statements in their opening or closing pages, as they often do, read these statements carefully. 6. Finally, turn the pages, dipping in here and there, reading a paragraph or two, sometimes several pages in sequence, never more than that. Thumb through the book in this way, always looking for signs of the main contention, listening for the basic pulse beat of the matter. Above all, do not fail to read the last two or three pages, or, if these are an epilogue, the last few pages of the main part of the book. Few authors are able to resist the temptation to sum up what they think is new and important about their work in these pages. You do not want to miss this, even though, as sometimes happens, the author himself may be wrong in his judgment. You have now skimmed the book systematically. You have given it the first type of inspectional reading. You should know a good deal about the book at this point, after having spent no more than a few minutes, at most an hour, with it. In particular, you should know whether the book contains matter that you still want to dig out, or whether it deserves no more of your time and attention. You should also be able to place the book even more accurately than before in your mental card catalog, for further reference if the occasion should ever arise. Incidentally, this is a very active sort of reading. It is impossible to give any book an inspectional reading without being alert, without having all of one's faculties awake and working. How many times have you daydreamed through several pages of a good book, 
only to wake up to the realization that you have no idea of the ground you have gone over. That cannot happen if you follow the steps outlined here. That is, if you have a system for following a general thread. Think of yourself as a detective looking for clues to a book's general theme or idea. Alert for anything that will make it clearer. Heeding the suggestions we have made will help you sustain this attitude. You'll be surprised to find out how much time you will save, pleased to see how much more you will grasp, and relieved to discover how much easier it all can be than you supposed. Inspectional Reading 2 Superficial Reading The title of this section is intentionally provocative. The word superficial ordinarily has a negative connotation. We are quite serious, however, in using the term. Everyone has had the experience of struggling fruitlessly with a difficult book that was begun with high hopes of enlightenment. It is natural enough to conclude that it was a mistake to try to read it in the first place. But that was not the mistake. Rather, it was in expecting too much from the first going over of a difficult book. Approached in the right way, no book intended for the general reader, no matter how difficult, need be a cause for despair. What is the right approach? The answer lies in an important and helpful rule of reading that is generally overlooked. That rule is simply this. In tackling a difficult book for the first time, read it through without ever stopping to look up or ponder the things you do not understand right away. Pay attention to what you can understand, and do not be stopped by what you cannot immediately grasp. Go right on reading past the point where you have difficulties in understanding, and you will soon come to things you do understand. Concentrate on these. Keep on in this way. Read the book through, undeterred and undismayed by the paragraphs, footnotes, comments, and references that escape you. If you let yourself get stalled, if you allow yourself to be tripped up by any one of these stumbling blocks, you are lost. In most cases, you will not be able to puzzle the thing out by sticking to it. You will have a much better chance of understanding it on a second reading. But that requires you to have read the book through at least once. What you understand by reading the book through to the end, even if it is only fifty percent or less, will help you when you make the additional effort later to go back to the places you passed by on your first reading. And even if you never go back, understanding half of a really tough book is much better than not understanding it at all, which will be the case if you allow yourself to be stopped by the first difficult passage you come to. Most of us were taught to pay attention to the things we did not understand. We were told to go to a dictionary when we met an unfamiliar word. We were told to go to an encyclopedia or some other reference work when we were confronted with allusions or statements we did not comprehend. We were told to consult footnotes, scholarly commentaries, or other secondary sources to get help. But when these things are done prematurely, they only impede our reading instead of helping it. The tremendous pleasure that can come from reading Shakespeare, for instance, was spoiled for generations of high school students who were forced to go through Julius Caesar, As You Like It, or Hamlet, scene by scene, looking up all the strange words in a glossary and studying all the scholarly footnotes. As a result, they never really read a Shakespearean play. By the time they reached the end, they had forgotten the beginning and lost sight of the whole. Instead of being forced to take this pedantic approach, they should have been encouraged to read the play at one sitting 
and discuss what they got out of that first quick reading. Only then would they have been ready to study the play carefully and closely, because then they would have understood enough of it to learn more. The rule applies with equal force to expository works. Here, indeed, the best proof of the soundness of the rule, give a book a first superficial reading, is what happens when you do not follow it. Take a basic work in economics, for example, such as Adam Smith's classic, The Wealth of Nations. We choose this book as an example because it is more than a textbook or a work for specialists in the field. It is a book for the general reader. If you insist on understanding everything on every page before you go on to the next, you will not get very far. In your effort to master the fine points, you will miss the big points that Smith makes so clearly about the factors of wages, rents, profits, and interest that enter into the cost of things, the role of the market in determining prices, the evils of monopoly, the reasons for free trade. You will miss the forest for the trees. You will not be reading well on any level. On Reading Speeds We described inspectional reading in Chapter 2 as the art of getting the most out of a book in a limited time. In describing it further, in the present chapter, we have in no way changed that definition. The two steps involved in inspectional reading are both taken rapidly. A competent inspectional reader will accomplish them both quickly, no matter how long or difficult the book he is trying to read. That working definition, however, inevitably raises the question, what about speed reading? What is the relation between the levels of reading and the many speed reading courses, both academic and commercial, that are offered at the present day? We have already suggested that such courses are basically remedial, that is, that they provide instruction mainly, if not exclusively, in reading on the elementary level. But more needs to be said. Let it be understood at once that we are wholly in favor of the proposition that most people ought to be able to read faster than they do. Too often there are things we have to read that are not really worth spending a lot of time reading. If we cannot read them quickly, it will be a terrible waste of time. It is true enough that many people read some things too slowly and that they ought to read them faster. But many people also read some things too fast and they ought to read those things more slowly. A good speed-reading course should therefore teach you to read at many different speeds, not just one speed that is faster than anything you can manage now. It should enable you to vary your rate of reading in accordance with the nature and complexity of the material. Our point is really very simple. Many books are hardly worth even skimming. Some should be read quickly, and a few should be read at a rate usually quite slow that allows for complete comprehension. It is wasteful to read a book slowly that deserves only a fast reading. Speed reading skills can help you solve that problem. But this is only one reading problem. The obstacles that stand in the way of comprehension of a difficult book are not ordinarily, and perhaps never primarily, physiological or psychological. They arise because the reader simply does not know what to do when approaching a difficult and rewarding book. He does not know the rules of reading. He does not know how to marshal his intellectual resources for the task. No matter how quickly he reads, he will be no better off if, as is too often true, he does not know what he is looking for and does not know when he has found it. 
With regard to rates of reading, then, the ideal is not merely to be able to read faster, but to be able to read at different speeds, and to know when the different speeds are appropriate. Inspectional reading is accomplished quickly, but that is not only because you read faster, although in fact you do. It is also because you read less of a book when you give it an inspectional reading, and because you read it in a different way, with different goals in mind. Analytical reading is ordinarily much slower than inspectional reading. But even when you are giving a book an analytical reading, you should not read all of it at the same rate of speed. Every book, no matter how difficult, contains interstitial material that can be and should be read quickly. And every good book also contains matter that is difficult and should be read very slowly. Fixations and Regressions Speed reading courses properly make much of the discovery, we have known it for half a century or more, that most people continue to sub-vocalize for years after they are first taught to read. Films of eye movements, furthermore, show that the eyes of young or untrained readers fixate as many as five or six times in the course of each line that is read. The eye is blind while it moves. It can only see when it stops. Thus, single words, or at the most, two-word or three-word phrases are being read at a time, in jumps across the line. Even worse than that, the eyes of incompetent readers regress as often as once every two or three lines, that is, they return to phrases or sentences previously read. All of these habits are wasteful, and obviously cut down reading speed. They are wasteful because the mind, unlike the eye, does not need to read only a word or short phrase at a time. The mind, that astounding instrument, can grasp a sentence or even a paragraph at a glance, if only the eyes will provide it with the information it needs. Thus, the primary task, recognized as such by all speed-reading courses, is to correct the fixations and regressions that slow so many readers down. Fortunately, this can be done quite easily. Once it is done, the student can read as fast as his mind will let him, not as slow as his eyes make him. There are various devices for breaking the eye fixations, some of them complicated and expensive. Usually, however, it is not necessary to employ any device more sophisticated than your own hand, which you can train yourself to follow as it moves more and more quickly across and down the page. You can do this yourself. Place your thumb and your first two fingers together. Sweep this pointer across a line of type, a little faster than it is comfortable for your eyes to move. Force yourself to keep up with your hand. You will very soon be able to read the words as you follow your hand. Keep practicing this, and keep increasing the speed at which your hand moves, and before you know it, you will have doubled or trebled your reading speed. The Problem of Comprehension But what exactly have you gained if you increase your reading speed significantly? It is true that you have saved time. But what about comprehension? Has that also increased? Or has it suffered in the process? There is no speed reading course that we know of that does not claim to be able to increase your comprehension along with your reading speed. And on the whole, there is probably some foundation for these claims. The hand, or some other device, used as a timer, 
tends not only to increase your reading rate, but also to improve your concentration on what you're reading. As long as you are following your hand, it is harder to fall asleep, to daydream, to let your mind wander. So far, so good. Concentration is another name for what we have called activity in reading. The good reader reads actively with concentration. But concentration alone does not really have much of an effect on comprehension when that is properly understood. Comprehension involves much more than merely being able to answer simple questions of fact about a text. This limited kind of comprehension, in fact, is nothing but the elementary ability to answer the question about a book or other reading material, what does it say? The many further questions that, when correctly answered, imply higher levels of comprehension, are seldom asked in speed-reading courses and instruction in how to answer them is seldom given. To make this clearer, let us take an example of something to read. Let us take the Declaration of Independence. You probably have a copy of it available. Take it down and look at it. It occupies less than three pages when printed. How fast should you read it? The second paragraph of the Declaration ends with the sentence, To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. The following two pages of facts, some of which incidentally are quite dubious, can be read quickly. It is not necessary to gain more than a general idea of the kind of facts that Jefferson is citing, unless, of course, you're a scholar concerned with the historical circumstances in which he wrote. Even the last paragraph, ending with the justly celebrated statement that the signers mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, can be read quickly. This is a rhetorical flourish, and it deserves what mere rhetoric always deserves. But the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence require more than a first rapid reading. We doubt that there is anyone who can read those first two paragraphs at a rate much faster than twenty words a minute. Indeed, individual words in the famous second paragraph, words like inalienable, rights, liberty, happiness, consent, just powers, are worth dwelling over, puzzling about, considering at length. Properly read, for full comprehension, those first two paragraphs of the Declaration might require days or weeks or even years. The problem of speed reading, then, is the problem of comprehension. Practically, this comes down to defining comprehension at levels beyond the elementary. Speed reading courses, for the most part, do not attempt this. It is worth emphasizing, therefore, that it is precisely comprehension in reading that this book seeks to improve. You cannot comprehend a book without reading it analytically. Analytical reading, as we have noted, is undertaken primarily for the sake of comprehension or understanding. Summary of Inspectional Reading A few words in summary of this chapter. There is no single right speed at which you should read. The ability to read at various speeds and to know when each speed is appropriate is the ideal. Great speed in reading is a dubious achievement. It is of value only if what you have to read is not really worth reading. A better formula is this. 
Every book should be read no more slowly than it deserves, and no more quickly than you can read it with satisfaction and comprehension. In any event, the speed at which they read, be it fast or slow, is but a fractional part of most people's problem with reading. Skimming or pre-reading a book is always a good idea. It is necessary when you do not know, as is often the case, whether the book you have in hand is worth reading carefully. You will find that out by skimming it. It is generally desirable to skim even a book that you intend to read carefully to get some idea of its form and structure. Finally, do not try to understand every word or page of a difficult book the first time through. This is the most important rule of all. It is the essence of inspectional reading. Do not be afraid to be or to seem to be superficial. Race through even the hardest book. You will then be prepared to read it well the second time. We have now completed our initial discussion of the second level of reading, inspectional reading. We will return to the subject when we come to part four, where we will show what an important role inspectional reading plays in syntopical reading, the fourth and highest level of reading. However, you should keep in mind during our discussion of the third level of reading, analytical reading, which is described in the second part of this book, that inspectional reading serves an important function at that level too. The two stages of inspectional reading can both be thought of as anticipations of steps that the reader takes when he reads analytically. The first stage of inspectional reading, the stage we have called systematic skimming, serves to prepare the analytical reader to answer the questions that must be asked during the first stage of that level. Systematic skimming, in other words, anticipates the comprehension of a book's structure. And the second stage of inspectional reading, the stage we have called superficial reading, serves the reader when he comes to the second stage of reading at the analytical level. Superficial reading is the first necessary step in the interpretation of a book's contents. Before going on to explain analytical reading, we want to pause for a moment to consider again the nature of reading as an activity. There are certain actions the active or demanding reader must perform in order to read well. We will discuss them in the next chapter. Chapter 5 How to Be a Demanding Reader The rules for reading yourself to sleep are easier to follow than are the rules for staying awake while reading. Get into bed in a comfortable position, make sure the light is inadequate enough to cause a slight eye strain, choose a book that is either terribly difficult or terribly boring, in any event one that you do not really care whether you read or not, and you will be asleep in a few minutes. Those who are experts in relaxing with a book do not have to wait for nightfall. A comfortable chair in the library will do any time. Unfortunately, the rules for keeping awake do not consist in doing just the opposite. It is possible to keep awake while reading in a comfortable chair or even in bed, and people have been known to strain their eyes by reading late in light too dim. What kept the famous candlelight readers awake? One thing, certainly. It made a difference to them, a great difference, whether or not they read the book they had in hand. Whether you manage to keep awake or not depends in large part on your goal in reading. If your aim in reading is to profit from it, to grow somehow in mind or spirit, 
you have to keep awake. That means reading as actively as possible. It means making an effort, an effort for which you expect to be repaid. Good books, fiction or non-fiction, deserve such reading. To use a good book as a sedative is conspicuous waste. To fall asleep or what is the same, to let your mind wander during the hours you planned to devote to reading for profit, that is primarily for understanding, is clearly to defeat your own ends. But the sad fact is that many people who can distinguish between profit and pleasure, between understanding on the one hand and entertainment or the mere satisfaction of curiosity on the other hand, nevertheless fail to carry out their reading plans. They fail even if they know which books give which. The reason is that they do not know how to be demanding readers, how to keep their mind on what they're doing by making it do the work without which no profit can be earned. The Essence of Active Reading The Four Basic Questions a Reader Asks We have already discussed active reading extensively in this book. We have said that active reading is better reading, and we have noted that inspectional reading is always active. It is an effortful, not an effortless undertaking. But we have not yet gone to the heart of the matter by stating the one simple prescription for active reading. It is, ask questions while you read, questions that you yourself must try to answer in the course of reading. Any questions? No. The art of reading on any level above the elementary consists in the habit of asking the right questions in the right order. There are four main questions you must ask about any book. Note, these four questions, as stated, together with the discussion of them that follows, apply mainly to expository or non-fiction works. However, the questions, when adapted, apply to fiction and poetry as well. The adaptations required are discussed in chapters 14 and 15. 1. What is the book about as a whole? You must try to discover the leading theme of the book and how the author develops this theme in an orderly way by subdividing it into its essential subordinate themes or topics. 2. What is being said in detail and how? You must try to discover the main ideas, assertions, and arguments that constitute the author's particular message. 3. Is the book true in whole or part? You cannot answer this question until you have answered the first two. You have to know what is being said before you can decide whether it is true or not. When you understand a book, however, you are obligated, if you are reading seriously, to make up your own mind. Knowing the author's mind is not enough. 4. What of it? If the book has given you information, you must ask about its significance. Why does the author think it is important to know these things? Is it important to you to know them? And if the book has not only informed you, but also enlightened you, it is necessary to seek further enlightenment by asking what else follows, what is further implied or suggested.
We will return to these four questions at length in the rest of this book. Stated another way, they become the basic rules of reading with which Part 2 is mainly concerned. They are stated here in question form for a very good reason. Reading a book on any level beyond the elementary is essentially an effort on your part to ask it questions and to answer them to the best of your ability. That should never be forgotten. And that is why there is all the difference in the world between the demanding and the undemanding reader. The latter asks no questions and gets no answers. The four questions stated above summarize the whole obligation of a reader. They apply to anything worth reading, a book or an article or even an advertisement. Inspectional reading tends to provide more accurate answers to the first two questions than to the last two, but it nevertheless helps with those also. An analytical reading of a book has not been accomplished satisfactorily until you have answers to those last questions, until you have some idea of the book's truth in whole or part, and of its significance, if only in your own scheme of things. The last question, what of it, is probably the most important one in syntopical reading. Naturally, you will have to answer the first three questions before attempting the final one. Knowing what the four questions are is not enough. You must remember to ask them as you read. The habit of doing that is the mark of a demanding reader. More than that, you must know how to answer them precisely and accurately. The trained ability to do that is the art of reading. People go to sleep over good books not because they are unwilling to make the effort, but because they do not know how to make it. Good books are over your head. They would not be good for you if they were not. And books that are over your head weary you unless you can reach up to them and pull yourself up to their level. It is not the stretching that tires you, but the frustration of stretching unsuccessfully because you lack the skill to stretch effectively. To keep on reading actively, you must have not only the will to do so, but also the skill, the art that enables you to elevate yourself by mastering what at first sight seems to be beyond you. How to Make a Book Your Own If you have the habit of asking a book questions as you read, you're a better reader than if you do not. But as we've indicated, merely asking questions is not enough. You have to try to answer them. And although that could be done theoretically in your mind only, it is much easier to do it with a pencil in your hand. The pencil then becomes the sign of your alertness while you read. It is an old saying that you have to read between the lines to get the most out of anything. The rules of reading are a formal way of saying this. But we want to persuade you to write between the lines, too. Unless you do, you are not likely to do the most efficient kind of reading. When you buy a book, you establish a property right in it just as you do in clothes or furniture when you buy and pay for them. But the act of purchase is actually only the prelude to possession in the case of a book. Full ownership of a book only comes when you have made it a part of yourself, and the best way to make yourself a part of it, which comes to the same thing, is by writing in it. 
Why is marking a book indispensable to reading it? First, it keeps you awake, not merely conscious, but wide awake. Second, reading, if it is active, is thinking. And thinking tends to express itself in words, spoken or written. The person who says he knows what he thinks but cannot express it, usually does not know what he thinks. Third, writing your reactions down helps you to remember the thoughts of the author. Reading a book should be a conversation between you and the author. Presumably he knows more about the subject than you do. If not, you probably should not be bothering with his book. But understanding is a two-way operation. The learner has to question himself and question the teacher. He even has to be willing to argue with the teacher once he understands what the teacher is saying. Marking a book is literally an expression of your differences or your agreements with the author. It is the highest respect that you can pay him. There are all kinds of devices for marking a book intelligently and fruitfully. Here are some devices that can be used. 1. Underlining of major points, of important or forceful statements. 2. Vertical lines at the margin, to emphasize a statement already underlined, or to point to a passage too long to be underlined. 3. Star, asterisk, or other doodad at the margin, to be used sparingly, to emphasize the ten or dozen most important statements or passages in the book. You may want to fold a corner of each page on which you make such marks, or place a slip of paper between the pages. In either case, you will be able to take the book off the shelf at any time, and by opening it to the indicated page, refresh your recollection. 4. Numbers in the margin To indicate a sequence of points made by the author in developing an argument. 5. Numbers of other pages in the margin to indicate where else in the book the author makes the same points, or points relevant to, or in contradiction of, those here marked, to tie up the ideas in a book which, though they may be separated by many pages, belong together. Many readers use the symbol CF to indicate the other page numbers. It means compare or refer to. 6. Circling of key words or phrases. This serves much the same function as underlining. 7. Writing in the margin, or at the top or bottom of the page, to record questions, and perhaps answers, which a passage raises in your mind, to reduce a complicated discussion to a simple statement, to record the sequence of major points right through the book. The endpapers at the back of the book can be used to make a personal index of the author's points in the order of their appearance. To inveterate bookmarkers, the front end papers are often the most important. Some people reserve them for a fancy bookplate, but that expresses only their financial ownership of the book. The front end papers are better reserved for a record of your thinking. After finishing the book and making your personal index on the back end papers, turn to the front and try to outline the book not page by page or point by point, you've already done that at the back, but as an integrated structure with a basic outline and an order of parts. That outline will be the measure of your understanding of the work. Unlike a book plate, it will express your intellectual ownership of the book.
The Three Kinds of Note-Making There are three quite different kinds of notes that you will make in your books as well as about them. Which kind you make depends upon the level at which you are reading. When you give a book an inspectional reading, you may not have much time to make notes in it. Inspectional reading, as we have observed, is always limited as to time. Nevertheless, you are asking important questions about a book when you read it at this level, and it would be desirable, even if it is not always possible, to record your answers when they are fresh in your mind. The questions answered by inspectional reading are, first, what kind of book is it? Second, what is it about as a whole? And third, what is the structural order of the work whereby the author develops his conception or understanding of that general subject matter? You may, and probably should, make notes concerning your answers to these questions, especially if you know that it may be days or months before you'll be able to return to the book to give it an analytical reading. The best place to make such notes is on the contents page, or perhaps on the title page, which are otherwise unused in the scheme we have outlined above. The point to recognize is that these notes primarily concern the structure of the book and not its substance, at least not in detail. We therefore call this kind of note-making structural. In the course of an inspectional reading, especially of a long and difficult book, you may attain some insights into the author's ideas about his subject matter. Often, however, you will not, and certainly you should put off making any judgment of the accuracy or truth of the statements until you have read the book more carefully. Then, during an analytical reading, you will need to give answers to questions about the truth and significance of the book. The notes you make at this level of reading are, therefore, not structural, but conceptual. They concern the author's concepts, and also your own, as they have been deepened or broadened by your reading of the book. There is an obvious difference between structural and conceptual note-making. What kind of notes do you make when you are giving several books a syntopical reading, when you are reading more than one book on a single subject? Again, such notes will tend to be conceptual and the notes on a page may refer you not only to other pages in that book, but also to pages in other books. There is a step beyond even that, however, and a truly expert reader can take it when he is reading several books syntopically. That is to make notes about the shape of the discussion, the discussion that is engaged in by all of the authors, even if unbeknownst to them. For reasons that will become clear in Part 4, we prefer to call such notes dialectical. Since they are made concerning several books, not just one, they often have to be made on a separate sheet or sheets of paper. Here, a structure of concepts is implied, an order of statements and questions about a single subject matter. We will return to this kind of note-making in Chapter 20. Forming the Habit of Reading any art or skill is possessed by those who have formed the habit of operating according to its rules. This is the way the artist or craftsman in any field differs from those who lack his skill. Now there is no other way of forming a habit of operation than by operating. That is what it means to say one learns to do by doing. The difference between your activity before and after you have formed a habit is a difference in facility and readiness. After practice, you can do the same thing much better than when you started. That is what it means to say practice makes perfect. 
What you do very imperfectly at first, you gradually come to do with the kind of almost automatic perfection that an instinctive performance has. You do something as if you were born to it, as if the activity were as natural to you as walking or eating. That is what it means to say that habit is second nature. Knowing the rules of an art is not the same as having the habit. When we speak of a man as skilled in any way, we do not mean that he knows the rules of making or doing something, but that he possesses the habit of making or doing it. Of course, it is true that knowing the rules more or less explicitly is a condition of getting the skill. You cannot follow rules you do not know. Nor can you acquire an artistic habit, any craft or skill, without following rules. The art, as something that can be taught, consists of rules to be followed in operation. The art, as something learned and possessed, consists of the habit that results from operating according to the rules. Incidentally, not everyone understands that being an artist consists in operating according to rules. People point to a highly original painter or sculptor and say, He isn't following rules. He's doing something entirely original, something that's never been done before, something for which there are no rules. But they fail to see what rules it is that the artist follows. There are no final, unbreakable rules, strictly speaking, for making a painting or a sculpture. But there are rules for preparing canvas and mixing paints and applying them, and for molding clay or welding steel. Those rules the painter or sculptor must have followed, or else he could not have made the thing he has made. No matter how original his final production, no matter how little it seems to obey the rules of art as they have traditionally been understood, he must be skilled to produce it. And this is the art the skill or craft, that we are talking about here. From Many Rules to One Habit Reading is like skiing. When done well, when done by an expert, both reading and skiing are graceful, harmonious activities. When done by a beginner, both are awkward, frustrating, and slow. Learning to ski is one of the most humiliating experiences an adult can undergo. That is one reason to start young. After all, an adult has been walking for a long time. He knows where his feet are. He knows how to put one foot in front of the other in order to get somewhere. But as soon as he puts skis on his feet, it is as though he had to learn to walk all over again. He slips and slides, falls down, has trouble getting up, gets his skis crossed, tumbles again, and generally looks and feels like a fool. Even the best instructor seems at first to be no help. The ease with which the instructor performs actions that he says are simple, but that the student secretly believes are impossible, is almost insulting. How can you remember everything the instructor says you have to remember? Bend your knees, look down the hill, keep your weight on the downhill ski, keep your back straight, but nevertheless lean forward. The admonitions seem endless. How can you think about all that and still ski? The point about skiing, of course, is that you should not be thinking about the separate acts that, together, make a smooth turn or series of linked turns. Instead, you should merely be looking ahead of you down the hill, anticipating bumps and other skiers, enjoying the feel of the cold wind on your cheeks, smiling with pleasure at the fluid grace of your body as you speed down the mountain. In other words, 
You must learn to forget the separate acts in order to perform all of them, and indeed any of them, well. But in order to forget them as separate acts, you have to learn them first as separate acts. Only then can you put them together to become a good skier. It's the same with reading. Probably you have been reading for a long time, too, and starting to learn all over again can be humiliating. But it is just as true of reading as it is of skiing, that you cannot coalesce a lot of different acts into one complex, harmonious performance until you become expert at each of them. You cannot telescope the different parts of the job so that they run into one another and fuse intimately. Each separate act requires your full attention while you're doing it. After you have practiced the parts separately, you can not only do each with greater facility and less attention, but can also gradually put them together into a smoothly running whole. All of this is common knowledge about learning a complex skill. We say it here merely because we want you to realize that learning to read is at least as complex as learning to ski or to typewrite or to play tennis. If you can recall your patience and any other learning experience you have had, you will be more tolerant of instructors who will shortly enumerate a long list of rules for reading. The person who has had one experience in acquiring a complex skill knows that he need not fear the array of rules that present themselves at the beginning of something new to be learned. He knows that he does not have to worry about how all the separate acts in which he must become separately proficient are going to work together. The multiplicity of the rules indicates the complexity of the one habit to be formed, not a plurality of distinct habits. The parts coalesce and telescope as each reaches the stage of automatic execution. When all the subordinate acts can be done more or less automatically, you have formed the habit of the whole performance. Then you can think about tackling an expert run you have never skied before, or reading a book that you once thought was too difficult for you. At the beginning, the learner pays attention to himself and his skill in the separate acts. When the acts have lost their separateness in the skill of the whole performance, the learner can at last pay attention to the goal that the technique he has acquired enables him to reach. We hope we've encouraged you by the things we have said in these pages. It's hard to learn to read well. Not only is reading, especially analytical reading, a very complex activity, much more complex than skiing. It is also much more of a mental activity. The beginning skier must think of physical acts that he can later forget and perform almost automatically. It is relatively easy to think of and be conscious of physical acts. It is much harder to think of mental acts, as the beginning analytical reader must do. In a sense, he is thinking about his own thoughts. Most of us are unaccustomed to doing this. Nevertheless, it can be done, and a person who does it cannot help learning to read much better. Part 2 The Third Level of Reading Analytical Reading Chapter 6 Pigeonholing a Book we said at the beginning of this book that the instruction in reading that it provides applies to anything you have to or want to read. However, in expounding the rules of analytical reading, as we will do in Part 2, 
we may seem to be ignoring that fact. We will usually, if not always, refer to the reading of whole books. Why is this so? The answer is simple. Reading a whole book, and especially a long and difficult one, poses the severest problems any reader can face. Reading a short story is almost always easier than reading a novel. Reading an article is almost always easier than reading a book on the same subject. If you can read an epic poem or a novel, you can read a lyric or a short story. If you can read an expository book, a history, a philosophical work, a scientific treatise, you can read an article or abstract in the same field. Hence, everything that we will say about reading books applies to reading other materials of the kinds indicated. You are to understand when we refer to the reading of books that the rules expounded refer to lesser and more easily understood materials too. Sometimes the rules do not apply to the latter in quite the same way, or to the extent that they apply to whole books. Nevertheless, it will always be easy for you to adapt them so that they are applicable. The Importance of Classifying Books The first rule of analytical reading can be expressed as follows. Rule 1. You must know what kind of book you are reading, and you should know this as early in the process as possible, preferably before you begin to read. You must know, for instance, whether you are reading fiction, a novel, a play, an epic, a lyric, or whether it is an expository work of some sort. Almost every reader knows a work of fiction when he sees it, or so it seems, and yet this is not always easy. Is Portnoy's complaint a novel or a psychoanalytical study? Is Naked Lunch a fiction or a tract against drug abuse, similar to the books that used to recount the horrors of alcohol for the betterment of readers? Is Gone with the Wind a romance or a history of the South before and during the Civil War? Do Main Street and the Grapes of Wrath belong in the category of belles-lettres, or are both of them sociological studies, the one concentrating on urban experiences, the other on agrarian life? All of these, of course, are novels. All of them appeared on the fiction side of the bestseller lists. Yet the questions are not absurd. Just by their titles it would be hard to tell in the case of Main Street and Middletown, which was fiction and which was social science. There is so much social science in some contemporary novels, and so much fiction in much of sociology, that it's hard to keep them apart. But there is another kind of science, too, physics and chemistry, for instance, in books like The Andromeda Strain, or the novels of Robert Heinlein or Arthur C. Clarke. And a book like The Universe and Dr. Einstein, while clearly not fiction, is almost as readable as a novel, and probably more readable than some of the novels of, say, William Faulkner. An expository book is one that conveys knowledge primarily, knowledge being construed broadly. Any book that consists primarily of opinions, theories, hypotheses, or speculations, for which the claim is made more or less explicitly that they are true in some sense, conveys knowledge in this meaning of knowledge and is an expository work. As with fiction, most people know an expository work when they see it. Here, however, the problem is not to distinguish non-fiction from fiction, but to recognize that there are various kinds of expository books. 
It is not merely a question of knowing which books are primarily instructive, but also which are instructive in a particular way. The kinds of information or enlightenment that a history and a philosophical work afford are not the same. The problems dealt with by a book on physics and one on morals are not the same, nor are the methods the writers employ in solving such different problems. Thus, this first rule of analytical reading, though it is applicable to all books, applies particularly to non-fictional expository works. How do you go about following the rule, particularly its last clause? As we've already suggested, you do so by first inspecting the book, giving it an inspectional reading. You read the title, the subtitle, the table of contents, and you at least glance at the preface or introduction by the author and at the index. If the book has a dust jacket, you look at the publisher's blurb. These are the signal flags the author waves to let you know which way the wind is blowing. It is not his fault if you will not stop, look, and listen. What you can learn from the title of a book The numbers of readers who pay no attention to the signals is larger than you might expect. We have had this experience again and again with students. We have asked them what a book was about. We have asked them, in the most general terms, to tell us what sort of book it was. This is a good way, almost an indispensable way, to begin a discussion of a book. Nevertheless, it is often hard to get any kind of answer to the question. Let us take a couple of examples of the kind of confusion that can occur. In 1859, Darwin published a very famous book. A century later, the entire English-speaking world celebrated the publication of the book. It was discussed endlessly, and its influence was assessed by learned and not-so-learned commentators. The book was about the theory of evolution, and the word species was in the title. What was the title? Probably you said The Origin of Species, in which case you were correct. But you might not have said that. You might have said that the title was The Origin of the Species. Recently, we asked some twenty-five reasonably well-read persons what the title of Darwin's book was, and more than half said The Origin of the Species. The reason for the mistake is obvious. They supposed, never having read the book, that it had something to do with the development of the human species. In fact, it has little or nothing to do with that subject, which Darwin covered in a later book, The Descent of Man. The origin of species about what its title says it is about, namely, the proliferation in the natural world of a vast number of species of plants and animals from an originally much smaller number of species, owing mainly to the principle of natural selection. We mention this common error because many think they know the title of the book, although few have actually ever read the title carefully and thought about what it means. Here's another example. In this case, we will not ask you to remember the title, but to think about what it means. Gibbon wrote a famous and famously long book about the Roman Empire. He called it The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Almost everybody who takes up the book recognizes that title, and most people, even without the book in their hand, know the title. Indeed, the phrase decline and fall has become proverbial. Nevertheless, when we asked the same twenty-five well-read people why the first chapter is called The Extent and Military Force of the Empire in the Age of the Antonines, 
they had no idea. They did not see that if the book as a whole was titled Decline and Fall, then it might be assumed that the narrative would begin with the high point of the Roman Empire and continue through to the end. Unconsciously, they had translated Decline and Fall into Rise and Fall. They were puzzled because there was no discussion of the Roman Republic, which ended a century and a half before the age of the Antonines. If they had read the title carefully, they could have assumed that the age of the Antonines was the high point of the empire, even if they had not known it before. Reading the title, in other words, could have given them essential information about the book before they started to read it, but they had failed to do that, as most people fail to do even with an unfamiliar book. One reason why titles and prefaces are ignored by many readers is that they do not think it important to classify the book they are reading. They do not follow this first rule of analytical reading. If they tried to follow it, they would be grateful to the author for helping them. Obviously, the author thinks it is important for the reader to know the kind of book he is being given. That is why he goes to the trouble of making it plain in the preface, and usually tries to make his title, or at least his subtitle, descriptive. Thus, Einstein and Infeld, in their preface to The Evolution of Physics, tell the reader that they expect him to know that a scientific book, even though popular, must not be read in the same way as a novel. They also construct an analytical table of contents to advise the reader in advance of the details of their treatment. In any event, the chapter headings listed in the front serve the purpose of amplifying the significance of the main title. The reader who ignores all these things has only himself to blame if he is puzzled by the question, what kind of book is this? He is going to become more perplexed. If he cannot answer that question, and if he never asks it of himself, he is going to be unable to answer a lot of other questions about the book. Important as reading titles is, it is not enough. The clearest titles in the world, the most explicit front matter, will not help you to classify a book unless you have the broad lines of classification already in your mind. You will not know the sense in which Euclid's Elements of Geometry and William James's Principles of Psychology are books of the same sort if you do not know that psychology and geometry are both sciences, and, incidentally, if you do not know that elements and principles mean much the same thing in these two titles, though not in general. Nor would you further be able to distinguish them as different unless you know there are different kinds of science. Similarly, in the case of Aristotle's Politics and Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, you can tell how these books are alike and different only if you know what a practical problem is and what different kinds of practical problems there are. Titles sometimes make the grouping of books easy. Anyone would know that Euclid's Elements, Descartes' Geometry, and Hilbert's Foundations of Geometry are three mathematical books, more or less closely related in subject matter. This is not always the case. It might not be so easy to tell from the titles that Augustine's The City of God, Hobbes's Leviathan, and Rousseau's Social Contract are political treatises, although a careful perusal of their chapter headings would reveal the problems that are common to these three books. Again, however, to group books as being of the same kind is not enough. 
To follow this first rule of reading, you must know what that kind is. The title will not tell you, nor all the rest of the front matter, nor even the whole book itself sometimes, unless you have some categories you can apply to classify books intelligently. In other words, this rule has to be made a little more intelligible if you are to follow it intelligently. It can only be made intelligible by drawing distinctions, and thus creating categories that make sense and will stand up to the test of time. We have already discussed a rough classification of books. The main distinction, we said, was between works of fiction on the one hand and works conveying knowledge or expository works on the other hand. Among expository works, we can further distinguish history from philosophy and both from science and mathematics. Now, this is all very well as far as it goes. This is a classification scheme with fairly perspicuous categories, and most people could probably place most books in the right category if they thought about it. But not all books in all categories. The trouble is that as yet we have no principles of classification. We will have more to say about these principles as we proceed in our discussion of the higher levels of reading. For the moment, we want to confine ourselves to one basic distinction, a distinction that applies across the board to all expository works. It is the distinction between theoretical and practical works. Practical versus Theoretical Books Everyone uses the words theoretical and practical, but not everyone knows what they mean, perhaps least of all the hard-headed practical man who distrusts all theorists, especially if they are in the government. For such persons, theoretical means visionary or even mystical. Practical means something that works, something that has an immediate cash return. There's an element of truth in this. The practical has to do with what works in some way, at once or in the long run. The theoretical concerns something to be seen or understood. If we polish the rough truth that is here being grasped, we come to the distinction between knowledge and action as the two ends a writer may have in mind. But, you may say, in dealing with expository books, are we not dealing with books that convey knowledge? How does action come into it? The answer, of course, is that intelligent action depends on knowledge. Knowledge can be used in many ways, not only for controlling nature and inventing useful machines or instruments, but also for directing human conduct and regulating man's operations in various fields of skill. What we have in mind here is exemplified by the distinction between pure and applied science or, as it is sometimes very inaccurately expressed, between science and technology. Some books and some teachers are interested only in the knowledge itself that they have to communicate. This does not mean that they deny its utility, or that they insist that knowledge is good only for its own sake. They simply limit themselves to one kind of communication or teaching, and leave the other kind to other men. These others have an interest beyond knowledge for its own sake. They are concerned with the problems of human life that knowledge can help to solve. They communicate knowledge, too, but always with a view to and an emphasis upon its application. To make knowledge practical, 
we must convert it into rules of operation. We must pass from knowing what is the case to knowing what to do about it if we wish to get somewhere. This can be summarized in the distinction between knowing that and knowing how. Theoretical books teach you that something is the case. Practical books teach you how to do something you want to do or think you should do. This book is practical, not theoretical. Any guidebook is a practical book. Any book that tells you either what you should do or how to do it is practical. Thus you see that the class of practical books includes all expositions of arts to be learned, all manuals of practice in any field, such as engineering or medicine or cooking, and all treatises that are conveniently classified as moral, such as books on economic, ethical, or political problems. We will later explain why this last group of books, properly called normative, constitutes a very special category of practical books. Probably no one would question our calling expositions of arts to be learned and manuals or rule books practical works. But the practical man, to whom we have referred, might object to the notion that a book on ethics, say, or one on economics, was practical. He might say that such a book was not practical because it was not true or would not work. In fact, this is irrelevant to the point. Although a book about economics that is not true is a bad book, strictly speaking, any ethical work teaches us how to live our lives, tells us what we should do and not do, and often informs us of the rewards and punishments attached to doing and not doing it. Thus, whether or not we agree with its conclusions, any such work is practical. Some modern sociological studies merely report the actual behavior of men without judging it. These are neither ethical nor practical books. They are theoretical works, works of science. Similarly with the work on economics. Apart from reportorial, mathematical, or statistical studies of economic behavior, which are theoretical rather than practical, such works usually teach us how to organize our economic life, either as individuals or as societies or states, tell us what we should do and not do, and also inform us of the penalties involved if we do not do what we should. Again, we may disagree, but our disagreement does not make the book unpractical. Immanuel Kant wrote two famous philosophical works, one called The Critique of Pure Reason, the other The Critique of Practical Reason. The first is about what is and how we know it, not how to know it, but how we in fact do know it, as well as about what can and cannot be known. It is a theoretical book par excellence. The Critique of Practical Reason is about how men should conduct themselves, and about what constitutes virtuous or right conduct. This book places great emphasis on duty as the basis of all right action, and that emphasis may seem repellent to many modern readers. They may even say it is impractical to believe that duty is any longer a useful ethical concept. What they mean, of course, is that Kant is wrong, in their opinion, 
in his basic approach. But that does not mean that his book is any less a practical work in the sense we are employing here. Apart from manuals and moral treatises, in the broad sense, one other instance of practical writing should be mentioned. An oration, a political speech or moral exhortation, certainly tries to tell you what you should do or how you should feel about something. Anyone who writes practically about anything not only tries to advise you, but also tries to persuade you to follow his advice. Hence, there is an element of oratory or exhortation in every moral treatise. It is also present in books that try to teach an art, such as this one. Thus, in addition to trying to teach you to read better, we have tried, and will continue to try, to persuade you to make the effort to do so. Although every practical book is somewhat oratorical and hortatory, it does not follow that oratory and exhortation are coextensive with the practical. There is a difference between a political harangue and a treatise on politics, between economic propaganda and an analysis of economic problems. The Communist Manifesto is a piece of oratory, but Marx's capital is much more than that. Sometimes you can detect that a book is practical by its title. If the title contains such phrases as the art of or how to, you can spot it at once. If the title names fields that you know are practical, such as ethics or politics, engineering or business, and in many cases economics, law or medicine, you can classify the book fairly readily. Titles can tell you even more than that. John Locke wrote two books with similar titles, An Essay Concerning Human Understanding and A Treatise Concerning the Origin, Extent, and End of Civil Government. Which of these is theoretical, which practical? From the titles alone, we may conclude that the first is theoretical, because any analysis of understanding would be theoretical, and that the second is practical because problems of government are themselves practical. But one could go beyond that, employing the techniques of inspectional reading that we have described. Locke wrote an introduction to the book on understanding. There he expressed his intention as being to inquire into the origin, certainty, and extent of human knowledge. The phrasing resembles the title of the book on government, but with one important difference. Locke was concerned with the certainty or validity of knowledge in the one case, and with the end or purpose of government in the other. Questions about the validity of something are theoretical, whereas to raise questions about the end of anything, the purpose it serves, is practical. In describing the art of inspectional reading, we noted that you should not ordinarily stop after reading the front matter of a book and perhaps its index. You should read passages in the book that appear to be of a summary nature. You should also read the beginning and end of the book and of its major parts. This becomes necessary when, as is sometimes the case, it is impossible to classify a book from its title and other front matter. In that case, you have to depend on signs to be found in the main body of the text. By paying attention to the words and keeping the basic categories in mind, you should be able to classify a book without reading very far. 
A practical book will soon betray its character by the frequent occurrence of such words as should and ought, good and bad, ends and means. The characteristic statement in a practical book is one that says that something should be done or made, or that this is the right way of doing or making something, or that one thing is better than another as an end to be sought or a means to be chosen. In contrast, a theoretical book keeps saying is, not should or ought. It tries to show that something is true, that these are the facts, not that things would be better if they were otherwise, and here is the way to make them better. Before turning to theoretical books, let us caution you against supposing that the problem is as simple as telling whether you are drinking coffee or milk. We have merely suggested some signs whereby you can begin to make discriminations. The better you understand everything that is involved in the distinction between the theoretical and the practical, the better you will be able to use the signs. For one thing, you will have to learn to mistrust them. You have to be suspicious in classifying books. We have noted that although economics is primarily and usually a practical matter, there are nevertheless books on economics that are purely theoretical. Similarly, although understanding is primarily and usually a theoretical matter, there are books, most of them are terrible, that purport to teach you how to think. You will also find authors who do not know the difference between theory and practice, just as there are novelists who do not know the difference between fiction and sociology. You will find books that are partly of one sort and partly of another, such as Spinoza's Ethics. It remains, nevertheless, to your advantage as a reader, to detect the way an author approaches his problem. Kinds of Theoretical Books The traditional subdivision of theoretical books classifies them as history, science, and philosophy. Everybody knows the differences here in a rough way. It is only when you try to refine the obvious and give the distinctions greater precision that you get into difficulties. For the moment, let us try to skirt that danger and let rough approximations suffice. In the case of history, the title usually does the trick. If the word history does not appear in the title, the rest of the front matter is likely to inform us that this is a book about something that happened in the past. Not necessarily in the far past, of course, because it may have happened only yesterday. The essence of history is narration. History is knowledge of particular events or things that not only existed in the past, but also underwent a series of changes in the course of time. The historian narrates these happenings and often colors his narrative with comment on or insight into the significance of the events. History is chronotopic. Chronos is the Greek word for time, topos the Greek word for place. History always deals with things that existed or events that occurred on a particular date and in a particular place. The word chronotopic can remind you of that. Science is not concerned with the past as such. It treats of matters that can happen at any time or place. The scientist seeks laws or generalizations. He wants to find out how things happen for the most part or in every case, not, as the historian does, how some particular things happened at a given time and place in the past. 
The title of a scientific work is usually less revealing than the title of a history book. The word science sometimes appears, but more often the name of the subject matter appears, such as psychology or geology or physics. Then we must know whether that subject matter belongs to the scientist, as geology clearly does, or to the philosopher, as metaphysics clearly does. The trouble comes with the cases that are not so clear, such as physics and psychology, which have been claimed at various times by both scientists and philosophers. There is even trouble with the very words philosophy and science, for they have been variously used. Aristotle called his book on physics a scientific treatise, although according to current usage we should regard it as philosophical. And Newton titled his great work Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, though for us it is one of the masterpieces of science. Philosophy is like science and unlike history in that it seeks general truths rather than an account of particular events, either in the near or distant past. But the philosopher does not ask the same questions as the scientist, nor does he employ the same kind of method to answer them. Since titles and subject matter names are not likely to help us determine whether a book is philosophical or scientific, how can we tell? There is one criterion that we think always works although you may have to read a certain amount of the book before you can apply it. If a theoretical book emphasizes things that lie outside the scope of your normal, routine, daily experience, it is a scientific work. If not, it is philosophical. The distinction may be surprising. Let us illustrate it. Remember that it applies only to books that are either science or philosophy, not to books that are neither. Galileo's two new sciences requires you to imagine or to repeat for yourself in a laboratory certain experiments with inclined planes. Newton's optics refers to experiences in dark rooms with prisms, mirrors, and specially controlled rays of light. The special experience to which the author refers may not have been obtained by him in a laboratory. The facts that Darwin reported in The Origin of Species, he observed in the course of many years of work in the field. They are facts that can be and have been rechecked by other observers making a similar effort. But they are not facts that can be checked in terms of the ordinary daily experience of the average man. In contrast, a philosophical book appeals to no facts or observations that lie outside the experience of the ordinary man. A philosopher refers the reader to his own normal and common experience for the verification or support of anything the writer has to say. Thus, Locke's essay concerning human understanding is a philosophical work in psychology, whereas many of Freud's writings are scientific. Locke makes every point in terms of the experience all of us have of our own mental processes. Freud can make many of his points only by reporting what he observed under the clinical conditions of the psychoanalyst's office. William James, another great psychologist, took an interesting middle course. He reports many examples of the special experience 
that only the careful, trained observer can know about, but he also frequently asks the reader to judge whether what is being said is not true from his own experience. Thus, James's Principles of Psychology is both a scientific and a philosophical work, although it is primarily scientific. The distinction proposed here is popularly recognized when we say that science is experimental or depends upon elaborate observational researches, whereas philosophy is merely armchair thinking. The contrast should not be invidious. There are certain problems, some of them very important, that can be solved in an armchair by a man who knows how to think about them in the light of common human experience. There are other problems that no amount of the best armchair thinking can solve. What is needed to solve them is investigation of some sort, experiments in the laboratory or research in the field, extending experience beyond the normal, everyday routine, special experience is required. This does not mean that the philosopher is a pure thinker and the scientist merely an observer. Both have to observe and think. But they think about different sorts of observations. And however they may have arrived at the conclusions that they want to prove, they prove them in different ways. The scientist, by pointing to the results of his special experiences, the philosopher by pointing to experiences that are common to all. This difference in method always reveals itself in philosophical and scientific books, and that is how you can tell which sort of book you are reading. If you note the sort of experience that is being referred to as a condition of understanding what is being said, you will know whether the book is scientific or philosophical. It is important to know this because apart from the different kinds of experience that they depend on, scientists and philosophers do not think in exactly the same way. Their styles in arguing are different. You must be able to find the terms and propositions, here we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, that constitute these different sorts of argumentation. The same is true of history. Historical statements are different from scientific and philosophical ones. A historian argues differently and interprets facts differently. Furthermore, the typical history book is narrative in form. A narrative is a narrative, whether it be fact or fiction. The historian must write poetically, which means he must obey the rules for telling a good story. Whatever other excellences Locke's essay on human understanding or Newton's Principia may have, neither is a good story. You may object that we are making too much of the classification of books, at least before one has read them. Is it really all that important? We may be able to meet the objections by calling your attention to one obvious fact. If you walked into a classroom in which a teacher was lecturing or otherwise instructing students, you could tell very soon whether the class was one in history, science, or philosophy. There would be something in the way the teacher proceeded, the kind of words he used, the type of arguments he employed, the sort of problems he proposed, and the kind of responses he expected from his students that would give him away as belonging to one department or another. And it would make a difference to you to know this if you were going to try to listen intelligently to what went on. In short, the methods of teaching different kinds of subject matter are different.
Any teacher knows this. Because of the difference in method and subject matter, the philosopher usually finds it easier to teach students who have not been previously taught by his colleagues, whereas the scientist prefers the student whom his colleagues have already prepared, and so forth and so on. Now, just as there is a difference in the art of teaching in different fields, so there is a reciprocal difference in the art of being taught. The activity of the student must somehow be responsive to the activity of the instructor. The relation between books and their readers is the same as that between teachers and their students. Hence, as books differ in the kinds of knowledge they have to communicate, they proceed to instruct us differently. And if we are to follow them, we must learn to read each kind in an appropriate manner. Chapter 7 X-Raying a Book Every book has a skeleton hidden between its covers. Your job as an analytical reader is to find it. A book comes to you with flesh on its bare bones and clothes over its flesh. It's all dressed up. You do not have to undress it or tear the flesh off its limbs to get at the firm structure that underlies the soft surface. But you must read the book with X-ray eyes, for it is an essential part of your apprehension of any book to grasp its structure. Recognition of the need to see the structure of a book leads to the discovery of the second and third rules for reading any book. We say any book. These rules apply to poetry as well as to science and to any kind of expository work. Their application will be different, of course, according to the kind of book they are used on. The unity of a novel is not the same as the unity of a treatise on politics, nor are the parts of the same sort or ordered in the same way. But every book without exception that is worth reading at all has a unity and an organization of parts. A book that did not would be a mess. It would be relatively unreadable, as bad books actually are. We will state these two rules as simply as possible. Then we will explain and illustrate them. The second rule of analytical reading can be expressed as follows. Rule 2. State the unity of the whole book in a single sentence, or at most a few sentences, a short paragraph. This means that you must say what the whole book is about as briefly as possible. To say what the whole book is about is not the same as saying what kind of book it is. That was covered by Rule 1. The word about may be misleading here. In one sense, a book is about a certain type of subject matter which it treats in a certain way. If you know this, you know what kind of book it is. But there is another more colloquial sense of about. We ask a person what he is about, what he's up to. So we can wonder what an author is up to, what he's trying to do. To find out what a book is about in this sense is to discover its theme or main point. A book is a work of art. Again, we want to warn you against too narrow a conception of art. We do not mean, or we do not only mean, fine art here. A book is the product of someone who has a certain skill in making. He is a maker of books, and he has made one here for our benefit. In proportion as it is good, as a book and as a work of art, 
it has a more nearly perfect, a more pervasive unity. This is true of music and paintings, of novels and plays. It is no less true of books that convey knowledge. But it is not enough to acknowledge this fact vaguely. You must apprehend the unity with definiteness. There is only one way to know that you have succeeded. You must be able to tell yourself or anybody else what the unity is, and in a few words. If it requires too many words, you have not seen the unity, but a multiplicity. Do not be satisfied with feeling the unity that you cannot express. The reader who says, I know what it is, but I just can't say it, probably doesn't even fool himself. The third rule can be expressed as follows. Rule three. Set forth the major parts of the book and show how these are organized into a whole by being ordered to one another and to the unity of the whole. The reason for this rule should be obvious. If a work of art were absolutely simple, it would, of course, have no parts. But that is never the case. None of the sensible physical things man knows is simple in this absolute way, nor is any human production. They are all complex unities. You have not grasped a complex unity if all you know about it is how it is one. You must also know how it is many, not a many that consists of a lot of separate things, but an organized many. If the parts were not organically related, the whole that they composed would not be one. Strictly speaking, there would be no whole at all, but merely a collection. There is a difference between a heap of bricks on the one hand and the single house they can constitute on the other. There is a difference between a single house and a collection of houses. A book is like a single house. It is a mansion having many rooms, rooms on different levels, of different sizes and shapes, with different outlooks, with different uses. The rooms are independent, in part. Each has its own structure and interior decoration. But they are not absolutely independent and separate. They are connected by doors and arches, by corridors and stairways, by what architects call a traffic pattern. Because they are connected, the partial function that each performs contributes its share to the usefulness of the whole house. Otherwise the house would not be livable. The analogy is almost perfect. A good book, like a good house, is an orderly arrangement of parts. Each major part has a certain amount of independence. As we will see, it may have an interior structure of its own, and it may be decorated in a different way from other parts. But it must also be connected with the other parts, that is, related to them functionally, for otherwise it would not contribute its share to the intelligibility of the whole. As houses are more or less livable, so books are more or less readable. The most readable book is an architectural achievement on the part of the author. The best books are those that have the most intelligible structure. Though they are usually more complex than poorer books, their greater complexity is also a greater simplicity, because their parts are better organized 
more unified. That is one of the reasons why the best books are also the most readable. Lesser works are really more bothersome to read. Yet to read them well, that is as well as they can be read, you must try to find some plan in them. They would have been better books if their authors had themselves seen the plan a little more clearly. But if they hang together at all, if they are a complex unity to any degree, and not mere collections, there must be a plan and you must find it. Of Plots and Plans Stating the Unity of a Book Let us return now to the second rule, which requires you to state the unity of a book. A few illustrations of the rule in operation may guide you in putting it into practice. Let us begin with a famous case. You probably read Homer's Odyssey in school. If not, you must know the story of Odysseus, or Ulysses, as the Romans call him, the man who took ten years to return from the siege of Troy, only to find his faithful wife, Penelope, herself besieged by suitors. It is an elaborate story, as Homer tells it, full of exciting adventures on land and sea, replete with episodes of all sorts and many complications of plot. But it also has a single unity of action, a main thread of plot that ties everything together. Aristotle, in his Poetics, insists that this is the mark of every good story, novel, or play. To support his point, he shows how the unity of the Odyssey can be summarized in a few sentences. A certain man is absent from home for many years. He is jealously watched by Poseidon and left desolate. Meanwhile his home is in a wretched plight. Suitors are wasting his substance and plotting against his son. At length, tempest-tossed, he himself arrives. He makes certain persons acquainted with him. He attacks the suitors with his own hand and is himself preserved while he destroys them. This, says Aristotle, is the essence of the plot. The rest is episode. After you know the plot in this way, and through it the unity of the whole narrative, you can put the parts into their proper places. You might find it a good exercise to try this with some novels you have read. Try it on some good ones, such as Fielding's Tom Jones, or Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, or Joyce's Modern Ulysses. The plot of Tom Jones, for instance, can be reduced to the familiar formula, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. That, indeed, is the plot of every romance. To recognize this is to learn what it means to say that there are only a small number of plots in the world. The difference between good and bad stories having the same essential plot lies in what the author does with it, how he dresses up the bare bones. You do not always have to find out the unity of a book all by yourself. The author often helps you. Sometimes the title is all you have to read. In the eighteenth century, writers had the habit of composing elaborate titles that told the reader what the whole book was about. Here is a title by Jeremy Collier, an English divine who attacked what he considered to be the obscenity we would say pornography, perhaps, of restoration drama, much more learnedly than is customary nowadays. A short view of the immorality and profaneness of the English stage, together with the sense of antiquity upon this argument. You can guess from this that Collier recites many flagrant instances of the abuse of morals, and that he supports his protest 
by quoting texts from those ancients who argued, as Plato did, that the stage corrupts youth, or as the early church fathers did, that plays are seductions of the flesh and the devil. Sometimes the author tells you the unity of his plan in his preface. In this respect, expository books differ radically from fiction. A scientific or philosophical writer has no reason to keep you in suspense. In fact, the less suspense he keeps you in, the more likely you are to sustain the effort of reading him through. Like a newspaper article, an expository book may summarize itself in its first paragraph. Do not be too proud to accept the author's help if he proffers it, but do not rely too completely on what he says in the preface either. The best-laid plans of authors, like those of mice and other men, often go awry. Be guided by the prospectus the author gives you, but always remember that the obligation of finding the unity belongs finally to the reader, as much as the obligation of having one belongs to the writer. You can discharge that obligation honestly, only by reading the whole book. The introductory paragraph of Herodotus' History of the War Between the Greeks and the Persians provides an excellent summary of the whole. It runs, These are the researches of Herodotus of Halicarnassus, which he publishes in the hope of thereby preserving from decay the remembrance of what men have done, and of preventing the great and wonderful actions of the Greeks and the barbarians from losing their due meed of glory and withal, to put on record what were their grounds of feud. That is a good beginning for you as a reader. It tells you succinctly what the whole book is about. But you'd better not stop there. After you have read the nine parts of Herodotus' history through, you will probably find it necessary to elaborate on that statement to do justice to the whole. You might want to mention the Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes, the Greek heroes of the war primarily Themistocles, and the major events, the crossing of the Hellespont and the decisive battles, notably Thermopylae and Salamis. All the rest of the fascinating details, with which Herodotus richly prepares you for his climax, can be left out of your summary of the plot. Note here that the unity of a history is a single thread of plot, very much as in fiction. So far as unity is concerned, this rule of reading elicits the same kind of answer in history and in fiction. A few more illustrations may suffice. Let us take a practical book first. The unity of Aristotle's ethics can be stated thus. This is an inquiry into the nature of human happiness and an analysis of the conditions under which happiness may be gained or lost with an indication of what men must do in their conduct and thinking in order to become happy or to avoid unhappiness, the principal emphasis being placed on the cultivation of the virtues, both moral and intellectual, although other goods are also recognized as necessary for happiness, such as wealth, health, friends, and a just society in which to live. Another practical book is Adam Smith's the wealth of nations. Here, the reader is aided by the author's own statement of the plan of the work at the very beginning. But that takes several pages. The unity can be more briefly stated as follows. This is an inquiry into the source of national wealth in any economy that is built on a division of labor, 
considering the relation of the wages paid labor, the profits returned to capital, and the rent owed the landowner, as the prime factors in the price of commodities. It discusses the various ways in which capital can be more or less gainfully employed, and relates the origin and use of money to the accumulation and employment of capital. Examining the development of opulence in different nations and under different conditions, it compares the several systems of political economy and argues for the beneficence of free trade. If a reader grasped the unity of the wealth of nations in this way, and did a similar job for Marx's Das Kapital, he would be well on the way toward seeing the relation between two of the most influential books of the past two centuries. Darwin's The Origin of Species provides us with a good example of the unity of a theoretical book in science. Here is a statement of it. This is an account of the variation of living things during the course of countless generations, and the way in which this results in new groupings of plants and animals. It treats both of the variability of domesticated animals and of variability under natural conditions, showing how such factors as the struggle for existence and natural selection operate to bring about and sustain such groupings. It argues that species are not fixed and immutable groups, but that they are merely varieties in transition from a less to a more marked and permanent status. Supporting this argument by evidences from extinct animals found in the Earth's crust, and from comparative embryology and anatomy. That may seem like a big mouthful, but the book was an even bigger one for a great many readers in the nineteenth century, partly because they did not go to the trouble of finding out what it was really about. Finally, let us take Locke's essay concerning human understanding as a theoretical book in philosophy. You may recall our observing that Locke himself summarized his work by saying that it was an inquiry into the origin, certainty, and extent of human knowledge, together with the grounds and degrees of belief, opinion, and assent. We would not quarrel with so excellent a statement of plan by the author, except to add two subordinate qualifications to do justice to the first and third parts of the essay. It will be shown, we would add, that there are no innate ideas, but that all human knowledge is acquired from experience, and language will be discussed as a medium for the expression of thought, its proper use and most familiar abuses to be indicated. There are two things we want you to note before we proceed. The first is how frequently you can expect the author, especially a good one, to help you to state the plan of his book. Despite that fact, most readers are at a total loss if you ask them to say briefly what the whole book is about. Partly this is owing to the widespread inability to speak concise English sentences. Partly it is owing to a neglect of this rule in reading. But it also indicates that many readers pay as little attention to the author's introductory words as they ordinarily do to his title. The second point is a word of caution. Do not take the sample summaries we have given you as if they were, in each case, a final and absolute formulation of the book's unity. Obviously stated, there is no one right way to do it. One statement is better than another, of course, in proportion as it is brief, accurate, and comprehensive. But quite different statements may be equally good or equally bad.
We have here sometimes stated the unity of a book quite differently from the author's expression of it, and without apologies to him. You may differ similarly from us. After all, a book is something different to each reader. It would not be surprising if that difference expressed itself in the way the reader stated its unity. This does not mean, however, that anything goes. Though readers are different, the book is the same, and there can be an objective check upon the accuracy and fidelity of the statements anyone makes about it. Mastering the Multiplicity The Art of Outlining a Book Let us turn now to the other structural rule, the rule that requires us to set forth the major parts of the book in their order and relation. This third rule is closely related to the second. A well-stated unity indicates the major parts that compose the whole. You cannot comprehend a whole without somehow seeing its parts. But it is also true that unless you grasp the organization of its parts, you cannot know the whole comprehensively. Why then make two rules here instead of one? It is primarily a matter of convenience. It is easier to grasp a complex and unified structure in two steps than in one. The second rule directs your attention toward the unity, the third toward the complexity of a book. There is another reason for the separation. The major parts of a book may be seen at the moment when you grasp its unity. But these parts are themselves usually complex and have an interior structure you must see. Hence, the third rule involves more than just an enumeration of the parts. It means outlining them, that is, treating the parts as if they were subordinate wholes, each with a unity and complexity of its own. A formula can be stated for operating according to this third rule. It will guide you in a general way. According to the second rule, we had to say, the whole book is about so-and-so and such-and-such. And such. That done, we might obey the third rule by proceeding as follows. 1. The author accomplished this plan in five major parts, of which the first part is about so-and-so, the second part is about such-and-such, such, the third part is about this, the fourth part about that, and the fifth part about still another thing. 2. The first of these major parts is divided into three sections, of which the first considers X, the second considers Y, and the third considers Z. 3. In the first section of the first part, the author makes four points, of which the first is A, the second B, the third C, and the fourth D, and so on and so forth. You may object to this much outlining. It would take a lifetime to read a book that way. But of course this is only a formula. The rule looks as if it required an impossible amount of work from you. In fact, the good reader does this sort of thing habitually, and hence easily and naturally. He may not write it all out. He may not even at the time of reading have made it all verbally explicit. But if he were called upon to give an account of the structure of the book, he would do something that approximated the formula we have described. The word approximation should relieve your anxiety. A good rule always describes the ideal performance. But a person can be skilled in an art without being the ideal artist. He can be a good practitioner if he merely approximates the rule. We have stated the rule here for the ideal case. You should be satisfied if you make a very rough approximation to what is required. Even when you become more skilled, you will not want to read every book with the same degree of effort. You will not find it profitable to expend all your skill on some books. 
Even the best readers try to make a fairly close approximation to the requirements of this rule for only a relatively few books. For the most part, they are satisfied with a rough notion of the book's structure. The degree of approximation varies with the character of the book and your purpose in reading it. Regardless of this variability, the rule remains the same. You must know how to follow it, whether you follow it closely or only in a rough fashion. You should understand that the limitations on the degree to which you can approximate the rule are not only ones of time and effort. You are a finite, mortal creature. But a book is also finite, and if not mortal, at least defective in the way all things made by man are. No book deserves a perfect outline, because no book is perfect. It goes only so far, and so must you. This rule, after all, does not call for your putting things into the book that the author did not put there. Your outline is of the book itself, not the subject matter that the book is about. Perhaps the outline of a subject matter could be extended indefinitely, but not your outline of the book, which gives the subject matter only more or less definitive treatment. Hence, you should not feel that we are urging you merely to be lazy about following this rule. You could not follow it out to the bitter end, even if you wanted to. The forbidding aspect of the formula for setting forth the order and relation of the parts may be somewhat lessened by a few illustrations of the rule in operation. Unfortunately, it is more difficult to illustrate this rule than the other one about stating the unity. A unity, after all, can be stated in a sentence or two, at most a short paragraph. But in the case of a large and complex book, a careful and adequate outline of the parts and their parts and their parts down to the least structural unit that is comprehensible and worthwhile identifying, would take a great many pages to write out. Theoretically, the outline could be longer than the original. Some of the great medieval commentaries on the works of Aristotle are longer than the works they comment on. They include, of course, more than an outline, for they undertake to interpret the author sentence by sentence. The same is true of certain modern commentaries, such as the great ones on Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, and a very aurum edition of a Shakespeare play, which includes an exhaustive outline as well as other things, is many times as long, perhaps ten times as long, as the original. You might look into a commentary of this sort if you want to see the rule followed as close to perfection as man can do. Aquinas, for instance, begins each section of his commentary with a beautiful outline of the points that Aristotle has made in a particular part of his work and he always says explicitly how that part fits the structure of the whole, especially in relation to the parts that come before and after. Let us take something easier than a treatise of Aristotle. Aristotle is probably the most compact of prose writers. You would expect that an outline of one of his works would be extensive and difficult. Let us also agree that, for the sake of the example, we will not carry the process out to the relative perfection that would be possible if we had a great number of pages available. The United States Constitution is an interesting, practical document, and a very well-organized piece of writing. If you examine it, you should have no difficulty in finding its major parts. They are pretty clearly indicated, although you have to do some thinking to make the main divisions. Here is a suggested outline of the document. First, the preamble, setting forth the purpose or purposes of the Constitution. Second, the first article, dealing with the legislative department of the government.
Third, the second article, dealing with the executive department of the government. Fourth, the third article, dealing with the judicial department of the government. Fifth, the fourth article, dealing with the relationship between the state governments and the federal government. Sixth, the fifth, sixth, and seventh articles, dealing with the amendment of the Constitution, its status as the supreme law of the land, and provisions for its ratifications. Seventh, the first ten amendments, constituting the Bill of Rights. Eighth, the remaining amendments up to the present day. Those are the major divisions. Now let us outline one of them, the second, comprising the Constitution's first article. Like most of the other articles, it is divided into sections. Here is a suggested outline. Roman numeral 2, 1. Section 1. Establishing legislative powers in a Congress of the United States, divided into two bodies, a Senate and a House of Representatives. Roman numeral 2, 2. Sections 2 and 3, respectively describing the composition of the House and Senate, and stating the qualifications of members. In addition, it is stated that the House has the sole power of impeachment, while the Senate has the sole power of trying impeachments. Roman numeral 2, 3. Sections 4 and 5, having to do with the election of members of both branches of Congress and with the internal organization and affairs of each. Roman numeral 2, 4. Section 6, stating the perquisites and emoluments of members of both branches and stating one limitation on civil employment of members. Roman numeral 2, 5. Section 7. Defining the relationship between the legislative and executive departments of the government and describing the President's veto power. Roman numeral 2, 6. Section 8. Stating the powers of Congress. Roman numeral 2, 7. Section 9. Stating some limitations on the powers outlined in Section 8. Roman numeral 2, 8. Section 10 stating limitations on the powers of the states and the extent to which they must give over certain powers to the Congress. We could then proceed to make a similar outline of all the other major divisions and, after completing that, return to outline the sections in turn. Some of these, for example Section 8 in Article 1, would require the identification of many different topics and subtopics. Of course, this is only one way of doing the job. There are many others. The first three articles could be grouped together in one major division, for instance. Or instead of two divisions with respect to the amendments, more major divisions could be introduced, grouping the amendments according to the problems they dealt with. We suggest that you try your hand at making your own division of the Constitution into its main parts. Go even further than we did, and try to state the parts of the parts as well. You may have read the Constitution many times, but if you have not applied this rule before, you will find that it reveals much in the document that you never saw. Here is one more example, again, very brief. We have already stated the unity of Aristotle's ethics. Now let us attempt a first approximation of its structure. The whole is divided into the following main parts. A first, treating of happiness as the end of life, 
and discussing it in relation to all other practicable goods. A second, treating of the nature of voluntary action and its relation to the formation of good and bad habits. A third, discussing the various virtues and vices, both moral and intellectual. A fourth, dealing with moral states that are neither virtuous nor vicious. A fifth, treating of friendship. And a sixth, and last, discussing pleasure, and completing the account of human happiness begun in the first. These divisions obviously do not correspond to the ten books of the ethics. Thus the first part is accomplished in the first book. The second part runs through book two and the first half of book three. The third part extends from the rest of book three through the end of book six. The discussion of pleasure occurs at the end of book seven and again at the beginning of book ten. We mention this to show you that you need not follow the apparent structure of a book as indicated by its chapter divisions. That structure may, of course, be better than the outline you develop, but it may also be worse. In any event, the point is to make your own outline. The author made his in order to write a good book. You must make yours in order to read it well. If he were a perfect writer and you a perfect reader, it would follow that the two would be the same. In proportion as either of you falls away from perfection, all sorts of discrepancies will inevitably result. This does not mean that you should ignore chapter headings and sectional divisions made by the author. We did not ignore them in our analysis of the Constitution, although we did not slavishly follow them either. They are intended to help you, just as titles and prefaces are. But you must use them as guides for your own activity, and not rely on them passively. There are few authors who execute their plan perfectly but there is often more plan in a good book than meets the eye at first. The surface can be deceiving. You must look beneath it to discover the real structure. How important is it to discover that real structure? We think very important. Another way of saying this is to say that Rule 2, the requirement that you state the unity of a book, cannot be effectively followed without obeying Rule 3 the requirement that you state the parts that make up that unity. You might, from a cursory glance at a book, be able to come up with an adequate statement of its unity in two or three sentences. But you would not really know that it was adequate. Someone else, who had read the book better, might know this and award you high marks for your efforts. But for you, from your point of view, it would have been merely a good guess, a lucky hit, this is why the third rule is absolutely necessary as a complement to the second one. A very simple example will show you what we mean. A two-year-old child, just having begun to talk, might say that two plus two is four. Objectively, this is a true statement. But we would be wrong to conclude from it that the child knew much mathematics. In fact, the child probably would not know what the statement meant. And so, although the statement by itself was adequate, we would have to say that the child still needed training in the subject. Similarly, you might be right in your guess about a book's main theme or point, but you still need to go through the exercise of showing how and why you stated it as you did. The requirement that you outline the parts of a book and show how they exemplify and develop the main theme is thus supportive of your statement of the book's unity. The reciprocal arts of reading and writing. 
In general, the two rules of reading that we have been discussing look as if they were rules of writing also. Of course they are. Writing and reading are reciprocal, as are teaching and being taught. If authors and teachers did not organize their communications, if they failed to unify them and order their parts, there would be no point in directing readers or listeners to search for the unity and uncover the structure of the whole. Nevertheless, although the rules are reciprocal, they are not followed in the same way. The reader tries to uncover the skeleton that the book conceals. The author starts with the skeleton and tries to cover it up. His aim is to conceal the skeleton artistically, or in other words, to put flesh on the bare bones. If he's a good writer, he does not bury a puny skeleton under a mass of fat. On the other hand, neither should the flesh be too thin so that the bones show through. If the flesh is thick enough, and if flabbiness is avoided, the joints will be detectable, and the motion of the parts will reveal the articulation. Why is this so? Why should not an expository book, one that attempts to present a body of knowledge in an ordered way, be merely an outline of the subject? The reason is not only that most readers cannot read outlines, and that such a book would be repellent to a self-respecting reader who thought that if he could do his job, the author ought to do his. There's more to it than that. The flesh of a book is as much a part of it as the skeleton. This is as true of books as it is of animals and human beings. The flesh the outline spelled out, read out, as we sometimes say, adds an essential dimension. It adds life, in the case of the animal. Just so, actually writing the book from an outline, no matter how detailed, gives the work a kind of life that it would not otherwise have had. We can summarize all of this by recalling the old-fashioned maxim that a piece of writing should have unity, clarity, and coherence. That is indeed a basic maxim of good writing. The two rules we've been discussing in this chapter relate to writing that follows that maxim. If the writing has unity, we must find it. If the writing has clarity and coherence, we must appreciate it by finding the distinction and the order of the parts. What is clear is so by the distinctness of its outlines. What is coherent hangs together in an orderly disposition of parts. These two rules, therefore, can be used to distinguish well-made books from badly-made ones. If, after you have attained sufficient skill, no amount of effort on your part results in your apprehension of the unity of a book, and if you are also not able to discern its parts and their relation to one another, then very likely the book is a bad one, whatever its reputation. You should not be too quick to make this judgment. Perhaps the fault is in you instead of the book. However, neither should you fail ever to make it, and always assume that the fault is in you. In fact, whatever your own failings as a reader, the fault is usually in the book. For most books, the very great majority, are badly made books in the sense that their authors did not write them according to these rules. These two rules can also, we might add, be used in reading any substantial part of an expository book, as well as the whole. If the part chosen is itself a relatively independent, complex unity, its unity and complexity must be discerned for it to be well read. Here there is a significant difference between books conveying knowledge and poetical works, plays, and novels. The parts of the former 
can be much more autonomous than the parts of the latter. The person who says of a novel that he has read enough to get the idea does not know what he's talking about. He cannot be correct, for if the novel is any good at all, the idea is in the whole and cannot be found short of reading the whole. But you can get the idea of Aristotle's ethics or Darwin's origin of species by reading some parts carefully although you would not, in that case, be able to observe Rule 3. Discovering the Author's Intentions There is one more rule of reading that we want to discuss in this chapter. It can be stated briefly. It needs little explanation and no illustration. It really repeats, in another form, what you have already done if you have applied the second and third rules. But it is a useful repetition, because it throws the whole and its parts into another light. This fourth rule can be stated thus, Rule 4. Find out what the author's problems were. The author of a book starts with a question or a set of questions. The book, ostensibly, contains the answer or answers. The writer may or may not tell you what the questions were, as well as give you the answers that are the fruits of his work, whether he does or does not, and especially if he does not, it is your task as a reader to formulate the questions as precisely as you can. You should be able to state the main question that the book tries to answer, and you should be able to state the subordinate questions, if the main question is complex and has many parts. You should not only have a fairly adequate grasp of all the questions involved, but should also be able to put the questions in an intelligible order, which are primary and which secondary which questions must be answered first, if others are to be answered later. You can see how this rule duplicates, in a sense, work you've already done in stating the unity and finding its parts. It may, however, actually help you to do that work. In other words, following the fourth rule is a useful procedure in conjunction with obeying the other two. And since the rule is a little more unfamiliar than the other two, it might be even more helpful to you in tackling a difficult book. We want to emphasize, however, that we do not mean for you to fall into what is called by critics the intentional fallacy. That is the fallacy of thinking you can discover what was in an author's mind from the book he has written. This applies particularly to literary works. It is a grave error, for example, to try to psychoanalyze Shakespeare from the evidence of Hamlet. Nevertheless, even with a poetical work, it is often extremely helpful to try to say what the author was trying to do. In the case of expository works, the rule has obvious merit. And yet most readers, no matter how skilled in other respects, very often fail to observe it. As a result, their conception of a book's main point or theme may be extremely deficient. And, of course, their outline of its structure will be chaotic. They will fail to see the unity of a book because they do not see why it has the unity it has, and their apprehension of the book's skeletal structure will lack comprehension of the end that it serves. If you know the kinds of questions anyone can ask about anything, you will become adept in detecting an author's problems. They can be formulated briefly. Does something exist? What kind of thing is it? What caused it to exist? or under what conditions can it exist, or why does it exist, what purpose does it serve. 
What are the consequences of its existence? What are its characteristic properties, its typical traits? What are its relations to other things of a similar sort or of a different sort? How does it behave? These are all theoretical questions. What ends should be sought? What means should be chosen to a given end? What things must one do to gain a certain objective, and in what order? Under these conditions, what is the right thing to do, or the better rather than the worse? Under what conditions would it be better to do this rather than that? These are all practical questions. This list of questions is far from being exhaustive, but it does represent the types of most frequently asked questions in the pursuit of theoretical or practical knowledge. It may help you discover the problems a book has tried to solve. The questions have to be adapted when applied to works of imaginative literature, and there, too, they will be useful. The First Stage of Analytical Reading We have now stated and explained the first four rules of reading. They are rules of analytical reading, although if you inspect a book well before reading it, that will help you to apply them. It is important at this point to recognize that these first four rules are connected and form a group of rules having a single aim. Together, they provide the reader who applies them with a knowledge of a book's structure. When you have applied them to a book, or indeed to anything fairly lengthy and difficult that you may be reading, you will have accomplished the first stage of reading it analytically. You should not take the term stage in a chronological sense, unless perhaps at the very beginning of your exercise as an analytical reader. That is, it is not necessary to read a book through in order to apply the first four rules, then to read it again and again in order to apply the other rules. The practiced reader accomplishes all of these stages at once. Nevertheless, you must realize that knowing a book's structure does constitute a stage toward reading it analytically. Another way to say this is that applying these first four rules helps you to answer the first basic question about a book. You will recall that that first question is, what is the book about as a whole? You will also recall that we said that this means discovering the leading theme of the book and how the author develops this theme in an orderly way by subdividing it into its essential subordinate themes or topics. Clearly, applying the first four rules of reading will provide most of what you need to know in order to answer this question. Although it should be pointed out that your answer will improve in accuracy as you proceed to apply the other rules and to answer the other questions. Since we have now described the first stage of analytical reading, let us pause a moment to write out the first four rules in order under the appropriate heading for review. The first stage of analytical reading, or rules for finding what a book is about. 1. Classify the book according to kind and subject matter. 2. State what the whole book is about with the utmost brevity. 3. Enumerate its major parts in their order and relation, and outline these parts as you have outlined the whole. 4. Define the problem or problems the author 
is trying to solve. Chapter 8 Coming to Terms with an Author The first stage of analytical reading has been accomplished when you have applied the four rules listed at the end of the last chapter, which together allow you to tell what a book is about and to outline its structure. You are now ready to go on to the next stage, which also comprises four rules of reading. The first of these we call, for short, coming to terms. Coming to terms is usually the last step in any successful business negotiation. All that remains is to sign on the dotted line. But in the analytical reading of a book, coming to terms is the first step beyond the outline. Unless the reader comes to terms with the author, the communication of knowledge from one to the other does not take place. For a term is the basic element of communicable knowledge. Words versus Terms A term is not a word, at least not just a word without further qualifications. If a term and a word were exactly the same, you would only have to find the important words in a book in order to come to terms with it. But a word can have many meanings, especially an important word. If the author uses a word in one meaning and the reader reads it in another, Words have passed between them, but they have not come to terms. Where there is unresolved ambiguity in communication, there is no communication, or at best, communication must be incomplete. Just look at the word communication for a moment. Its root is related to the word common. We speak of a community as a group of people who have something in common. Communication is an effort on the part of one person to share something with another person or with an animal, or a machine. His knowledge, his decisions, his sentiments. It succeeds only when it results in a common something, such as an item of information or knowledge that two parties share. When there is ambiguity in the communication of knowledge, all that is in common are the words that one person speaks or writes, and another hears or reads. So long as ambiguity persists, there is no meaning in common between writer and reader. For the communication to be successfully completed, therefore, it is necessary for the two parties to use the same words with the same meanings. In short,